Alrighty, here we go. Thanks everybody for uh, tuning in or not to this somewhat special, I guess you could say, edition of the old Colin room. I wanted to do a room specifically about the whole issue of World War II history, historiography, whatever term is most apt that I've been uh, talking about over the past uh, week or so, which culminated in my publication of a fairly lengthy article on Friday that I acknowledge is not going to be a complete chronology or rendering of the issues involved because that's virtually impossible given a a subject as uh, wide-ranging as this one. However, it's a useful uh, distillation of the relevant issues at hand, at least for my purposes. And what is the relevant issue at hand for my purposes? Well, I try to spell it out as clearly as humanly possible in the article and whenever I discuss it on other venues, but I'll repeat it here. And hopefully uh, people can recognize that this actually is my purpose in discussing the topic and I don't have any kind of surreptitious or hidden motive. The purpose is that uh, all throughout the war in Ukraine since February and um, obviously preceding it and in various other contexts as well, but specifically since February of this year, you have this rote invocation of World War II as an analogy that supposedly compels U.S. interventionist policy today with respect to the Ukraine war because the assumption is that U.S. entry into World War II or U.S. interventionist policy in relation to World War II has totally unambiguous, morally absolute content. Or in other words, whether to support or endorse U.S. interventionist policy in World War II is a matter of unambiguous, morally absolute certainty, and any right-minded citizen today ought to just presumptively endorse that interventionist policy because World War II is regarded as this morally absolute binary conflict in which the U.S. intervened on the side of good, and therefore its interventionist policy was unreservedly, unambiguously good. Um, now, you know, given the ubiquity of those invocations of those analogies, I thought it was worth delving into some of the assumptions that underlie the analogies, right? And again, the assumption that underlies the analogy is that U.S. interventionist policy in World War II was an unmitigated, unambiguous good. So there were three main issues that I cited which pose I, what I would regard to be a very serious challenge to the idea that U.S. interventionist policy in World War II was an unmitigated, unambiguous good. Number one is that... U.S. entry into the war was effectuated by the government at the direction of Franklin Roosevelt in tandem with a campaign of concerted state deception. Now, when I talk about entry 
I'm talking about different phases of entry into the war. Obviously, the entry phase that most people are going to be familiar with is when on December 8th, 1941, the U.S. formally declared war on Japan after Pearl Harbor. That's what I tend to refer to as formal entry or official entry. However, there were phases of entry well before that, including phases that included direct warfare initiated by the U.S. on Germany. Now, one phase of that entry could be regarded as the passage of the Lend-Lease Bill, the original Lend-Lease Bill, by the way, which has now been revived vis-a-vis Ukraine in 2022. But in March of 1941, the Congress passed and Roosevelt signed the legislation that implemented the program of so-called Lend-Lease. Now, this was... This program was designed to massively increase the U.S. provision of war armaments to belligerents in the conflict, first of all, Great Britain. And when the Lend-Lease legislation was being debated, uh, and the debate was very rancorous and divisive, more so than people might get the impression of today, given that it has this now saintly character in the national mythology, you know, no one could have raised any objections to the implementation of Lend-Lease at that time, or at least so you might intuit, given how it's discussed in the present day. But when Lend-Lease was being debated in uh, January and February and March of 1941, before its official enactment, there was an extremely rancorous and divisive debate. And many people suggested at the time, contemporaneously, that the passage of the Lend-Lease bill would essentially make it inevitable that the U.S. would become a belligerent in the war. Now, one of those people making those contemporaneous warnings was Norman Thomas, who was a six-time presidential candidate, uh, leader of the Socialist Party. And on January 22nd, 1941, Thomas was called to testify before the House Committee of Foreign Affairs in opposition to the Lend-Lease Bill. And Thomas said this, quote, it is a bill to authorize undeclared war in the name of peace. And in fact, Thomas's statement there echoes the judgment of one of Roosevelt's biographers, Joseph Lash, who said years later, decades later, actually, quote, it was Roosevelt's policy to wage war without declaring it. Now, other things that uh, Norman Thomas said about the effects of this Lend-Lease bill in January of 1941, months before it was officially enacted, which happened in March, uh, Norman Thomas said that the purpose of Lend-Lease was for Roosevelt to, quote, put us in war gradually knowing that we would refuse to go into it all at once. Thomas also said, quote, Moreover, it seems to be forgotten that our acts of war against Hitler may, be, may well be interpreted by Japan under her treaty with the Axis as justifying her entry into the war. We shall have total war on two oceans 
and five continents. That's Norman Thomas in January of 1941 opposing the enactment of the Lend-Lease Bill. Now, when I say that there was a systematic campaign of deception, here's what I'm referring to. One of the objections raised to the Lend-Lease Bill was that it would be used as a vehicle to, among other things, carry out U.S. naval convoys. So the U.S. Navy would be used to convoy supplies to belligerent powers in the war, including uh, Great Britain, and this was regarded to be a potential factor that could bring the U.S. officially into the war. So administration officials during this debate were asked about that potential, the potential that it could be used as a authorization for these convoys. And here's an exchange that took place between uh, Frank Knox, who was the Secretary of the Navy in 1941, and a member of Congress, uh, Francis Bolton, who was asking Knox about the effects of the implementation of this bill. And so Congress, uh, the Congresswoman... Bolton asked Knox if the legislation would authorize the allowing of convoys. And Knox said, quote, no, no. In my judgment, that will be an act of war. Nobody can declare war but the Congress. So Bolton asked in a follow-up question, your judgment is if the power is not granted under this bill, the power to convoy is not then granted. Knox said, that is my understanding. (laughs) Okay? So it turns out Years later, once the full records emerged, you know, as tends to be the case with these kinds of things, that the Army and Navy had already begun drafting convoy plans as early as December 16th of 1940, so a full month, over a month, before Knox made that statement publicly to Congress. And in fact, Roosevelt, the very day before had orally sanctioned the planning of these convoys on January 16th of 1941. According to the official army records, what what Roosevelt orally sanctioned was, quote, that the Navy should be prepared to convoy shipping in the Atlantic to England. So the exact opposite of what administration officials were saying would not be the case was already in the works. And to underscore the deception of this, on January 22nd, the New York Times published a front-page article summarizing what Roosevelt had said at a press conference. And here was the headline of the New York Times article, quote, no plan to convoy President States. Well, as we know, given the records that emerged years later, there were plans to convoy. That was a deception. Now, if somebody can explain to me how that was not a deception, I'm all ears. Um, the thing that I hear more often is that actually it was good for the U.S. to have undertaken or for the Roosevelt administration to have undertaken this campaign of systematic deception. Um, Well, you can say that, but that would seem to me anyway to complicate this idea that U.S. entry into World War II was an unmitigated, unambiguous good because one thing that I don't tend to declare an unambiguous, unmitigated moral good is deliberate, systematic campaigns of state deception to enter the U.S. into a war. Um, Especially when 
Roosevelt in 1940, so just months earlier when he was campaigning for re-election, he was adamant. He was absolutely unequivocal that his about his position on U.S. entry to the war. For example, on October 30th, Roosevelt, campaigning in Boston just days before the election, said, quote, while I am talking to you, mothers and fathers, I give you one more assurance. I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent to any foreign wars. Then a few days later, on November 2nd in Buffalo, Roosevelt said, your president says this country is not going to war. Meanwhile, we know that there were plans that the administration knew would constitute acts of war uh, were in the works very shortly thereafter um, and maybe even before that as well. Um, So what are some other prongs of the public deception campaign? Now, I'm not going to get into everything because people should read the article in full. I'm not going to, you know, recite it here in its totality. But, you know, one example is that as early as December of 1940, Roosevelt was in talks with the Icelandic General Council, uh, Consul in uh, Washington, for about plans for the U.S. to undertake an operation to occupy Iceland, which was proximate to the German war zone, um, and even in the war zone, given the nature of the territorial waters in that vicinity of Iceland. And Roosevelt, on the basis of the enactment of the Lend-Lease Bill, which, again, was pledged, including by Roosevelt himself, who said that the nature of this policy was not to bring the U.S. into war, the implementation of the Lend-Lease Bill then led to, and sorry for background noise, then led to the secret occupation by Roosevelt of Iceland in July of 1940. Sorry, 1941. In July of 1941, the enactment of the Lend-Lease Bill led to the secret occupation of Iceland. Congress was not informed about it before it was already underway. It couldn't be debated. It couldn't be scrutinized by the public before it already happened because Roosevelt ordered it secretly. Okay? Only when U.S. The U.S. expeditionary convoy that Roosevelt ordered were en route to Iceland across the Atlantic Ocean. Did the White House press secretary call reporters and give them instructions as to how they should characterize this action? And what Early told the reporters was that they, the reporters should not provide any details and should underplay the significance of the action. Now, decades later, again, as tends to be the case with these sorts of things, the uh, Naval War College published a study that emphasized the momentous significance of this occupation of Iceland. Because for one thing, they said, and this is the Naval War College, not a fringe study. I'm not citing any fringe studies, actually, in this discussion. I'm not citing any fringe sources whatsoever. Everything is totally mainstream, and much of it actually comes from the U.S. military itself. The Naval War College study emphasized that this study, this uh, action by Roosevelt was dramatically significant because it was a decisive repudiation of 
George Washington's original injunction that the U.S. must not get entangled with European powers during peacetime anyway. And, you know, ostensibly, this was all taking place when the U.S. was a neutral country, right? The neutrality laws were still in effect. Um, There was no declaration of war publicly. And so the momentousness of this action was actually subsequently remarked upon by the by the you know the academic wings of the military but even so when uh, Burton Wheeler who was a senator from Montana uh, who had ran for vice president in 1924 on the ticket with Robert M La Follette who is the most high profile progressive party figure in the country uh, in that period and who ran for president on an alliance with the uh, Socialist Party and the uh, Farm Labor Party. Uh, that's the ticket that Wheeler ran on. Uh, Wheeler, that in 1941, revealed publicly for the first time, for the first time anybody was aware that this was happening, that the Iceland occupation was in progress. And for this, Wheeler was furiously denounced uh, by the administration. The White House press secretary accused Wheeler of endangering U.S. troops. Um, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, accused Wheeler of engaging in subversive activities that verge on treason. Um, and what Wheeler said, and I'd be hard-pressed for anybody to dispute the validity of this statement... Uh, what he says is, in justifying why he leaked this information or revealed this information, he said, quote, I believe the American people have the right to know every step that is being taken by the administration, which tends to involve us in war. Now, whenever Wheeler gets brought up or whenever many non-interventionists from this period get brought up, what automatically gets done by people who want to discredit the non-interventionist position from that period is that these people get declared to have been fascists or they get declared to have been uh, Nazis in their own right or they get declared to have been uh, ideologically simpatico with uh, Charles Lindbergh or Henry Ford Um, and Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford are cited as the emblems of a non-interventionist position during that period. Now I contend uh, separately from what I wrote in this article, maybe it warrants another article. I don't know if people still want to delve into this topic. It seems like there's interest, but who knows. Um, but my contention is that the reason that Lindbergh and Ford are so reflexively brought up as emblematic of the non-interventionist position during this period is because it discredits, in the eyes of many, the non-interventionist period, uh, position writ large because the most high-profile purveyors of it are thought to have been People like Lindbergh and Ford, who uh, espoused what is seen as anti-Semitic views. Henry Ford definitely did. Lindbergh uh, did as well on various occasions. Um, And Lindbergh definitely did express also a fondness for uh, Nazi Germany in various respects. Um, Now, you know, after I published this article, there was a critique put forward on Twitter saying that I lied somehow, by 
omitting the informa- information that suggests uh, Wheeler himself was a Nazi sympathizer. Now, the, the main evidence put forward for this, and even relevant in terms of what I actually wrote in terms of what was done to Wheeler and what he did in terms of revealing the Iceland, Iceland operation and so forth, but even separate from that, the basis for this contention, there are the main basis for this contention that Wheeler was himself a, a Nazi sympathizer and therefore nothing he did during this period could be justifiably cited for any purpose, um, is that there was a photo of Wheeler taken at a rally in the, at Madison Square Garden in, uh, in 1941 in which Wheeler has his hand elevated and he's standing next to Lindbergh and Wheeler is said to have been giving a Nazi salute on stage. Now, Wheeler's biographer disputes vehemently that Wheeler was giving a Nazi salute. Wheeler himself had long disputed it. Uh, he is standing next to Lindbergh, who is giving some, a, a salute that looks a bit more like it could conceivably be a Nazi salute. And given Lindbergh's actual sympathies for Nazi Germany, it's not out of the question that Lindbergh himself was giving a Nazi salute. But also on stage, um, alongside Wheeler and Lindbergh, is Norman Thomas, the aforementioned Socialist Party leader who is giving the same hand gesture as Wheeler. Now, are we to believe that Norman Thomas, the most prominent socialist figure in the country, who was unabashed in his contempt for Nazi Germany and for fascism and so forth, are we to believe that Norman Thomas was giving a Nazi salute um, and that in this one photo, of all the things that Norman Thomas said throughout the course of his entire life, before the war, after the war, and during the war, in this one photo, Norman Thomas was expressing his secret Nazi sympathies, that seems to me to be implausible. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of a side note, because I didn't even make reference to any of that in the actual article. That everything that I referenced in the article was having to do with the systematic state deception that seems to me to have un- indisputably taken place during this period. Um, so then, you know, further on, Lendlease was first used for convoys to belligerent parties uh, starting in August. That was the thing that was disclaimed would ever happen during the debate that took place in Congress around what the effects of Lend-Lease would be. That was taken, that step was taken at the order of Roosevelt in August of 1941. And then by uh, September of 1941, the thing that the Secretary of Navy said would would happen, and the thing that many contemporaneous critics said would happen if Lend-Lease were enacted, did in fact happen. And there was direct naval warfare starting on September 4th between the U.S. and Germany. Now, when that instance of naval warfare took place on September 4th, a USS, uh, a U.S. warship, the Greer, was fired at by a German U-boat. The torpedo fired by the German U-boat missed. However, on September 11th, a week later... Roosevelt delivered an address in which he declared that Germany had been the aggressor. Germany fired upon the U.S. warship. 
Germany had initiated the attack. And as such, Roosevelt said that he was publicly giving a shoot-on-site uh, shoot order. So in other words, any time that a U.S. vessel uh, saw or had sight of a German vessel, the order, as given by Roosevelt, was to shoot at that German vessel as of September 11th publicly. Now, what later turned out to have been the case is that this order was already long in the works. In August of 1941, Winston Churchill met with Roosevelt at the Atlantic Conference. This was off the coast of Newfoundland, uh, and the co conference began August 7th. Only in 1972 did records come out in which Roosevelt is recorded as telling his own war cabinet that Roosevelt had told him, Churchill, that he, Roosevelt, would, quote, wage war but not declare it and that he would become more and more provocative. If the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. Churchill added that Roosevelt was reticent to put the matter before Congress because, quote, they would debate it for months. So in the meantime, according to Churchill, Roosevelt had concluded that, quote, everything was to be done to force an incident with Germany that would, quote, justify him, Roosevelt, in opening hostilities. Because overall, Churchill uh, said, Roosevelt was, quote, obviously determined that they should come in, meaning that the U.S. should enter the war. Now, if that is the position of a president in private and the position guiding his policy action, and that policy action is being deliberately concealed from the wider public, then that seems to me an obvious, blatant case of state deception. Now, you could argue, in theory, that the state deception is warranted. Fine. But it, at the very least, to me, indicates that the case, the, uh, the idea of World War II or U.S. entry therein being this example of clear-cut, morally ambiguous, absolute um, goodness, that seems to be challenged by the campaign of state deception, which escalated even further after that statement that was recorded by Churchill because two subsequent incidents followed after the Greer incident in September. The Kearney, the, US, the warships Kearney and Reuben James also entered into direct warfare with Germany. Uh, the Kearney was uh, hit, but struck, but not sunk, and seven soldiers died, or sorry, 11 uh, sailors died. And then the Reuben James was struck and sunk, and 100 soldiers, uh, or sailors died, rather. So 111 U.S. sailors were killed in direct warfare with Germany pursuant to their implementation of Lend-Lease, which had been assured by Roosevelt and by his administration officials was not going to be used or even couldn't be used as a vehicle by which the U.S. was to enter into direct warfare. That was false. It was the vehicle by which the U.S. entered into direct warfare with Germany. And on top of that, according to 
a contemporaneous speech given by Arthur Kroc, who was the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, not some fringe agitator, uh, but one of the, considered one of the most reputable and reliable journalists of his time, Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, okay, not some pamphleteer, not that a pamphleteer would necessarily be wrong, but this was not what Kroc was. Kroc, on November 5th, gave a speech in which he said that given the internal studies that had been carried out by the government that he had been made privy to, Roosevelt had deceived the public as to all three of these incidents. And in fact, the U.S., at the order of Roosevelt, had initiated attacks on all three of these warships. So they were not acts of unilateral aggression by Germany as they had been portrayed. And if you look at the, dipl- the archives from uh, the German side, and by citing these, I'm not, quote, taking them at their word or just believing them or something. I'm citing them only insofar as they've been cited throughout the historical literature for decades. And my source uh, for these particular archives is Saul Friedlander, who is considered one of the most eminent historians of the Holocaust period and is still alive today at 89, um, having lived as a child in occupied France in the 40s. In in Saul's book, or Saul Friedlander's book in the 1960s, um, he shows contemporaneous records demonstrating that all throughout 1941, up uh, up to these incidents that were then carried out at the order of Roosevelt, Hitler was attempting to avoid America, was attempting to thwart or forestall U.S. entry into the war. Now, Hitler thought that it was inevitability that it would happen officially at some point. But strategically, Hitler sought for the U.S. not to enter the war uh, throughout 1941, at least formally. And so there are records in which the admiral of the, admiral of the German Navy is uh, beseeching Hitler to authorize attacks on U.S. warships in this war zone in the North Atlantic, around Iceland. And Hitler is increasingly strenuously denying those requests, including during the period when the incidents first started taking place in September, when Roosevelt was saying that the U.S. had been proactively attacked by Germany. Okay. So that's just a factual record. That's not me surmising anything. It's not me extrapolating anything. It's just going off the factual record. And then what I do extrapolate and what I think is a wholly substantiated and well-grounded extrapolation is that this was another prong of the systematic deception undertaken by the Roosevelt administration uh, pursuant to the gradual escalating involvement of the U.S. into the war. And the Lend-Lease Bill had been presented to the public on false pretenses because it was actually the vehicle by which the U.S. would enter in direct warfare with Germany. Um, And when Hitler uh, uh, formally declared war on the U.S. on December 11th, he cited these three incidents as 
evidence that the U.S. had already been in, in a state, had already initiated a state of warfare against Germany. And all three of these incidents, according to the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, were in reality um, the opposite of how Roosevelt had portrayed them. And the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, Kroc, bemoaned, he lamented, he was angered that, in fact, Hitler had the, quote, facts on his side as to these three incidents. Kroc did not want Hitler to have the facts on his side about anything. Hitler was despised, rightly. But nonetheless, Kroc lamented that given the deception that had been undertaken by the U.S. government at the direction of Roosevelt in respect to these three incidents, Hitler unfortunately did have the facts on his side. Now, that's not a moral judgment by me or Kroc or anyone about Hitler being good, okay? That's a, such a ridiculous non sequitur. Hitler, if it needs to be said, I'll say it, was psychotic. Hitler had delusions of grandeur that were informed by his virulent Jew hatred. Hitler was someone who believed that the entire world Jewry was conspiring against him um, by way of as societies as disparate as the Soviet Union and the United States. And his views on the nature of Jews uh, themselves were psychotic and demented. Of course, that does not mean that it's somehow historically intolerable to cite anything Hitler said over this period as part of the historical record. Because if that were the case, then nothing Hitler ever said could be cited for any purpose. Okay, so that's number one. Um, and again, this is not a comprehensive rendering of everything that I wrote in this article. Uh, I would just ask that people actually read the article in full, um, and I'm happy to deal with any criticisms or critiques and, um, yeah, so, okay, so point number two, and I'll try to make this quicker so people I can get to questions, okay, or comments. The second reason why I contend that it is not sustainable to declare unambiguously and with moral absolutism that it was, quote, good for the U.S. to have entered World War II is that a foundational tenet, not an aberration, not an exception, but a foundational, institutionally authorized tenet of the U.S. warfare strategy was deliberate targeting of civilians, okay? This is not disputable. This is the factual record. And I, the factual record derives from the official record of the military itself, not anybody else's interpretation not anybody else's surmises, not what uh, Nazi Germany said or what Japan said, but the U.S. military itself said in the, uh, contemporaneously and then also in the subsequent decades. So in terms of targeting, deliberately targeting of civilian population centers, uh, the British armed forces had been done, had done this, and this is uh, my source for this, okay, is a review published in 2006 by the Air University Press, which is, which is the publishing uh, outfit of the United States Air Force, okay? All throughout this 
discussion, I've made a point to only consult sources that could not conceivably be dismissed by anyone as fringe or uh, unreliable or denialist or anything along those lines, okay? Now, those sources exist. I'm not saying that it would be impossible to to consult any of those sources for anything ever, but for these purposes, I've not deliberately, intentionally not consulted any of those sources, okay? Only mainstream sources, including primarily for this section, the U.S. military itself. Now, here's what the U.S. Air Force publishing house study review in 2006 says. That it says that beginning uh, on 19, uh, December 6, 1940, so a, uh, a year before the U.S. entered the war formally, the British Air Force had already begun to be ordered to, quote, drop incendiaries on the center of town with the, quote, clear intention of burning out the city center uh, in German cities. So beginning in December 6, uh, 1940, the British Air Forces had already been ordered to deliberately target civilians, civilian population centers, and the purpose of this, according to the British chief of the air staff, Sir Charles Portal, was to, quote, instill, uh, was to instill, quote, generalized fear. Um, now, when the U.S. entered the war in 1941, obviously, Britain was its chief ally, um, and it wasn't until uh, September of 1943, so about a year and a half after the U.S. formally entered the war, that the U.S. officially institutionalized this strategic imperative from Great Britain. And an order was issued by the U.S. Air Force on September 27, 1943, for U.S. air crews to, quote, aim for the center of the city, not specific industrial or transportation targets, uh, during an air raid on the German city of Emden by the U.S. Now, deliberate targeting of civilians had already taken place prior to September of 1943 by the U.S. It was just more on an ad hoc basis that was sanctioned by the institutional apparatus of the military. So, for example, on August 12th, 1943, U.S. bombers quote, visually attacked the city of Bonn as a target of opportunity with 243 tons of bombs. Now, by 1945, a U.S. general in the Air Force, George McDonald, complained about the widespread adoption of this tactic that was getting even more and more institutionalized and officially authorized by that period. And he said in an internal memo you know, that came out later, of course, as these things tend to do, that the U.S. Air Force had, quote, was unequivocally into the business of area bombardment of congested civil populations, causing, quote, indiscriminate homicide and destruction. Okay? Um, Now, some may argue, and the popular belief that caused me to impart in part caused me to write this section, is that there's a popular belief that, you know, while the U.S., Entry into the war was, of course, justified. There may have been examples of tactics employed in specific incidents that crossed the line and ought to not be considered justified or ought to be considered unjustified. And commonly, those examples include the U.S. participation, uh, along with Britain, in the firebombing of Dresden in 1945, 
uh, and the U.S. firebombing of Tokyo, also in 1945, and then, of course, the U.S. nuclear strikes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, also in 1945. Those tend to be among the most premier examples that people will cite of instances in which the U.S. tactics crossed the line and might not have been justified, even if the larger war effort was justified. But what I'm trying to demonstrate here, one of the things I'm trying to demonstrate, is that these attacks, as unabashedly deliberate attacks on civilians as they were, were not aberrations. They were simply some of the more high-profile examples of an institutionally authorized policy by the U.S., um, after that 1943 air raid on, uh, uh, on the German city Emden that, in which crews received explicit orders to drop firebombs on the city center, according to the Air Force study, raids of that kind were then conducted, ordered and conducted at least once per week until the end of the war, Okay not just during the firebombing of Dresden, uh, not just during the firebombing of Tokyo, um, and not just any other of those high pro- more higher-profile incidents. Uh, and in fact, even though on many occasions the U.S. Air Force had no compunction about recording specifically that they had, in fact, deliberately targeted the civilian population centers, uh, even instances in when, it was, when it was recorded that a supposed communications or transportation target had been the focus of the raid. Those examples of U.S. aerial bombardment cannot be easily separated from instances in which it was explicitly admitted that civilian population centers have been targeted because, according to a professor at the U.S. Army War College, again, source that comes straight from the horse's mouth, the U.S. as a matter of course included incendiary bombs in its aerial bombardment, uh, which they knew would cause lots of collateral damage in the vicinity of these supposed communications or transportation targets and kill civilians. That was deliberate, okay? It was not incidental or accidental. It was deliberate and known and contemporaneously recorded and well-established beyond any reasonable doubt. Um, In fact, as... Uh, Thomas Searle said in 2002 in the Journal of Military History, quote, the leaders of the U.S. Air Force knew exactly what they were doing and civilian casualties were one of the explicit objectives of area incendiary bombing approved by both the U.S. Air Force and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I don't know how you get much more direct than that, uh, but we can get even more direct because uh, as uh, Alex Bellamy of the University of Queensland uh, reported in his 2012 book, and by the way, a lot of this information comes out or at least gets reinforced or made more vivid in scholarship that's come out even with just, within just the past five or ten years, which I think partly may explain why there's still, why a lot of this information is received with such incredulity or anger um, and why people's sense of the sort of the mythological history of the U.S. entry into World War II is still so uh, vigorously sort of enforced. But here's what Alex J. Bellamy wrote in 2012 in his book, uh, according to records he obtained uh, as to the U.S. aerial bombardment strategy in Japan 
um, as it was designed by the Air Force planners. According to Bellamy, the Air Force planners, quote, used three criteria to select targets. In order of importance, they were, one, congestion and inflammability of the city. Number two was incidents of war industry, and number three was incidents of transportation facilities. Bellamy writes, Despite public claims to the contrary, the planners clearly chose cities themselves as targets, and primarily on the basis of the likely destruction that would be wrought with the presence of war industries, a secondary consideration to the potential for destroying cities congested with civilians. The, president's, the presence of military facilities was apparently not a major factor in the target selection. Okay, So the primary factor in the selection of targets in the U.S. aerial bombardment campaign in Japan was the ma- amount of destruction that could be wrought on civilians. That is what is being stated there. And in total, although estimates vary, it can be reasonably said that approximately 1.5 million civilians were killed in Japan and Germany alone on the basis of a U.S. aerial bombardment strategy that had embedded within it the specific prerogative to target civilians for destruction. Um, That was, in fact, explicitly authorized by Roosevelt himself in a directive with Churchill in January of 1943 when he ordered that the, quote, morale of the German population ought to be sapped by way of this bombing. And it was known uh, and it was uh, explicitly articulated that morale bombing or bombing designed to undercut morale was targeting of civilians. That was what it was. Um, Now, when people say flippantly and blithely, in my judgment, or when they think it's so easy to contend that while one might object to certain methods or tactics employed by the U.S. over the course of its intervention in World War II, that does nothing to undermine the justifiability of the initial entry. Now, my argument is that those things are not so easily severable as people seem to think. Uh, especially when we're talking about this retroactive moral judgment we're all supposed to assign, where we're supposed to declare unreservedly and unambiguously that it was, quote, good, metaphysically good, for the U.S. to have entered the war. Well, if that entry into the war was guided by a specific warfare policy of targeting civilians for maximum destruction, and at minimum, just through the aerial bombardment campaigns alone, 1.5 million civilians were killed, then that to me does impinge on the question of whether the U.S. entry itself was justified because you can't separate, in my judgment, the conduct of a war, the foundational tenets of the conduct of a war, from the war itself. They're inseparable phenomenon. Um, So it would be like saying, in the case of the Vietnam War, you know, I object to the systematic destruction of villages, but... I still believe the Vietnam War was justified. Well, if you object to the systematic destruction of the villages, what you're objecting to is the Vietnam War itself. So your statement uh, asserting some sort of distinction there is incoherent. And that's my point on World War II and U.S. entry therein. And then the final point, and then I'll I'll try to be quick uh, because I want to get to comments, is that one of the sort of folklore-style beliefs 
having to do with U.S. entry into World War II that forms the basis of this automatic assumption that U.S. entry into World War II was an unmitigated good or was unambiguously morally absolute in its correctness is that U.S. entry into World War II had some sort of mitigating effect on the Holocaust, whether it prevented the Holocaust or curtailed the Holocaust or mitigated the Holocaust. The assumption is that U.S. entry into World War II had a desirable effect on the Holocaust in the sense that it limited or somehow uh, reduced the lethality of the Holocaust. And I'm not making up that people believe this. This whole, one of the reasons why I got thrown into a firestorm around this issue is because somebody um, named Andrew Fleischman, who's you know a somewhat prominent lawyer, uh, said, quote, uh, in terms of my discussion of this topic, I disagree with your stance that we should have permitted the Holocaust with only a smidgen of personal bias. Now, he's saying that my stance, uh, as he infers it, given my discussion of this topic, is that, quote, we should have permitted the Holocaust, um, which would have to mean, I would think, that in order that in assigning unambiguous moral endorsement to U.S. entry into World War II, you're assuming that that entry had a mitigating or curtailing or preventative effect on the Holocaust. Now, I'm supplying a huge breadth of literature derived from eminently mainstream sources, including some of the most heralded sources in the field of Holocaust studies that severely challenge this perception, okay? And not only do they severely challenge it, but the most mainstream historians in the publishing in the most mainstream sources present the view that not only did U.S. entry into World War II defined as the escalation of U.S. interventionist policy throughout 1941, culminating in formal U.S. entry after Pearl Harbor, According to a huge array of historians that are the most, among the most prominent and well-regarded in their field, not only was there a correlation between that process of U.S. entry and the most lethal phase of the Holocaust as regards European Jews, but that according to many, uh, including such historians as uh, Adam Tooze, including Saul Freelander, who... Uh, only just last year, one, one of the most prominent historical uh, awards for Holocaust studies, um, who is considered one of the most eminent historians in the field, again, still alive in 89, lived in occupied France. According to him, uh, according to a uh, member of the Academic Council of the Holocaust Museum in Buenos Aires, Daniel Rafikas, who is also a visiting, visiting lecturer at uh, Yad Vashem, in Israel, the Holocaust Memorial, um, and on and on and on. According to them, uh, there is, uh, and did I mention Adam Tooze, by the way, the prominent, well-regarded historian at uh, Columbia University? According to them, among others, that's just a limited ex- set of examples I just gave, there is not just a correlation between the U.S. entry into the war or escalating U.S. involvement in the war and the escalation or acceleration of the most lethal phase of the Holocaust, according to them, there is varying degrees of causality that can be ascribed to U.S. entry to the war on the conduct 
by Nazi Germany of the Holocaust. Now, I am personally, uh, I personally have gone out of my way to refrain from, on my own accord, ascribing that causality. Because to me, it suffices to point to a variety of eminent scholars in the field who do assign varying do- those varying degrees of correlation and causality. So it's not me making the claim. It's some of the most reputable people in the field making the claim. Because again, remember, what my point is, ultimately, is that this reflexes, reflexive assumption that U.S. entry into World War II was an unmitigated, unparalleled moral good, and it was one of the most sim- simple moral questions to have ever faced humanity, that is severely challenged by a range of factors, including this factor, as to the potential correlation and or causation uh, of U.S. Pol- interventionist policy as relates to the Nazi Germany conduct of the Holocaust. Now, if it needs to be said, even though I've said this 10 billion times at this point, I'll say it again. I am not me, Michael Tracy. I am not blaming the U.S. for the Holocaust. I'm not saying the U.S. is responsible for the Holocaust. I'm not saying that the U.S. Had the U.S. not entered the war, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened or the most lethal phase of the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. I'm not denying that Nazi Germany had carried out the mass killing of Jews prior to U.S. entry into the Holocaust. Um, I acknowledge that there were mass killings of Jews prior to official U.S. entry into the war in December of 1941. I'm not denying that there were infrastructural efforts already underway in Nazi Germany that would subsequently then be used to carry out the phase of the Holocaust in which the five most significant uh, death camps, German death camps, uh, killed Jews by murdering them. I'm not denying that that construction of architecture or infrastructure occurred prior to a formal U.S. entry into the war in 1941. I'm not saying that Nazi Germany bears any less responsibility for the Holocaust. I assert that Nazi Germany does bear responsibility for the Holocaust, okay? So I don't know how much more more clear I can be about any of those things, okay? I'm simply stating that according to a wide breadth of evidence, um, including some of the most eminent historians in the field, they assign varying degrees of causality and correlationality, if that's a word, to U.S. entry into World War II on the Holocaust. And I'll just end it here because I, I want to go to comments. One of my chief sources on this topic has been Christian Gerlach, who is a professor of history at the University of Bern, um, who wrote a landmark paper in 1998 uh, reporting certain primary source records for the first time on this topic of what effect U.S. entering to the war may have had on the acceleration of the most lethal phase of the Holocaust. And according to him, Gerlach, in the 1998 paper, quote, Hitler announced his declaration of war against the United States in the Reichstag on December 11, 1941. For Germany, that made the war a world war. Thus, the situation Hitler had envisioned in 1939 had come about with complete logical consistency and consistent with the framework of his anti-Semitic worldview, Hitler then proclaimed his decision to exterminate all Jews in Europe. He did not, to be sure... Uh, sorry. On the following afternoon, December 12th, Hitler addressed 
a meeting of the most important sectional leaders of the Nazi of the National Socialist Party, and among the things that Hitler said in that address to the Socialist Party is that is was recorded by uh, Goebbels, who said that Hitler spoke as follows regarding the Jewish question: the Führer is determined, the Führer is determined to clear the table. He warned the Jews that if they were to cause another world war, it would lead to their own destruction. These were, those were not empty words. Now the war has come. The destruction of the Jews must be its necessary consequence. We cannot be sentimental about it. It is not for us to feel sympathy for the Jews. We should have sympathy rather with our own German people. If German people have to sacrifice another 160,000 civilian uh, victims and yet another campaign in the East, then those responsible for this bloody conflict will have to pay it for it with their lives. Now, Gerlach writes that what Goebbels records Hitler as having said there should not be regarded as, quote, metaphorical or propaganda. In other words, Gerlach is saying what Goebbels records Hitler as having said there is a literal statement of policy or a change in directive as to policy toward the European Jews. Um, and among the factors for this timing, according to Gerlach, uh, is that uh, Hitler may have concluded that, quote, the European Jews had lost for the Nazi leadership their role as hostages who might deter the U.S. from open entry into the war because Hitler regarded European Jews as kin of the government in the U.S. Um, now, Hitler, uh, I mean, Ger Gerlach, rather, also says that uh, you know, while deportation of Jews from the German Reich had already been underway prior to this decision in December of 1941, quote, a decision to exterminate them had not yet been made. That was made after U.S. entry into the war uh, because uh, all contemporaneous records show that once Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, Hitler understood himself to be at war with the United States, and therefore the conflict that had already been underway became a world war that was a fulfillment of the prophecy that he had made in 1939 in which he had said that at the onset of the next world war, the consequence must be the final annihilation of European Jews. Um, and after this decision in 1941, according to December of 1941, according to Gerlach, quote, systematic planning for the destruction of Jews throughout Europe began. Um, in other words, that systematic planning and implementation and had not yet been underway, even if, yes, of course, there had already been construction underway of uh, certain facilities that would later be used as death camps that would be uh, in which uh, gas would be used to kill a large number of Jews. No one's denying that. That is true. Um, but uh, as according to Gerlach, the uh, murder of Jews by gas at the, quote, five major German extermination camps. And this is in his, is in his 2016 book uh, published by Cambridge University Press. So again, the farthest thing from a fringe or denialist source. Uh, the murder of Jews by, quote, the murder of Jews by gas at, quote, the five major German extermination camps began on dates after which the U.S. entered World War II and after which Hitler regarded himself himself to be officially at war with the U.S. and not just in a state of war as he had assumed he had been prior. So the murder of Jews by gas, according to Gerlach, began at uh, Chelmsford on December 8, 1941, Auschwitz in February 1942, although 
exact date not specified, and that had only at Auschwitz only, it only began in, on a small scale in February of 1942. It then radically escalated later. Uh, Belzec, the ger- murder of Jews by gas, began on March 7th, 1942. Sohibor began May 1942, exact date not specified. Treblinka, J- July 22nd, 1942. Okay, so my original statement that caused such a firestorm was that the mass scale extermination of Jews associated with this phase of the final solution began after U.S. entry into World War II. That was vigorously and vehemently denounced as wrong. I'm citing evidence that it's correct, and it doesn't mean that I am denying that mass killings of Jews did not take place prior to that or that Jews had not been marked for killing. I acknowledge that. Also doesn't mean that uh, Soviet Jews were not being exterminated as partisans prior to this. That is true. Um, what Goebbels records Hitler as saying after U.S. entry into World War II, that European Jews were also to be marked as partisans, just as the Soviet Jews had. Okay? And um, so there are huge amounts of historians who say, to one degree or another, that there was causality in the U.S. entering the war in terms of this initiation, uh, the initiation of this phase of the Holocaust. And one example of that, and I'll leave it here, is that um, it comes from uh, Brendan Sims and Charlie Laterman. Uh, Sims is of Cambridge University, Laterman of King's College London. This was a, in their book published in 2021 called Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. I came across this book because it was cited by Adam Tooze, you know, the well-regarded Columbia University historian who, by the way, whose book I had been reading sort of coincidentally prior to this whole fracas. Uh, but here's what Sims and Laterman say, quote, whether the entry of the U.S. into the war was the decisive factor here or merely an accelerant, it is clear that a primary motivation and context for Hitler's war of annihilation against Western and Central European Jewry was his relationship with the United States. Okay? Now, I could give many other examples of causality being ascribed uh, to who I got, whose uh, writings caused me to find that book by Sims and Laterman said that even well prior to U.S. formal entry in December of 1941, the enactment of Lend-Lease had such a crucial influence on Nazi Germany that, quote, it impelled the radicalization of the regime's racial policy, meaning that Lend-Lease impelled the radicalization of Nazi Germany's policy toward the Jews. And I could go on forever with those citations. Uh, There are many more that I have not referenced that are in the article. And I know I've gone on very long here, but I wanted to be reasonably comprehensive And I'll end here by restating what the purpose of this discussion was in the first place. It was to show that it it is not not so easily sustainable to just declare unreservedly and unambiguously that U.S. entry into World War II was this ultimate unalloyed moral good. And on that basis... U.S. entry into World War II can be invoked as relates to present-day debates around subjects like U.S. interventionist policy in Ukraine and be uh, cited to compel U.S. 
interventionist policy in Ukraine because it is assumed that U.S. interventionist policy in World War II was this unmitigated, unambiguous good. What I'm challenging is that it could be so easily declared that U.S. entry to World War II was this unmitigated, unambiguous good. I'm not saying the U.S. ought not to have entered World War II. I'm not making any counterfactual arguments about what would have happened if the U.S. did not enter World War II. What I'm doing is looking at the chronology of U.S. entry into World War II and assessing the facts in relation to this question of whether ultimate moral uh, unambiguity can be ascribed to that entry. Now, if you're still with me, I thank you. Uh, and uh, let's go on to comments. Charles, you're up. If you're there, please unmute. Hello? Yep, hey. All right. Uh, thank you for uh, doing this. It's been really, like, uh, I had a few things to say. Uh, after the First World War, there was an immense amount of propaganda produced uh, against Germany, some of which was based in fact. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the occupation of Belgium, in which atrocities were committed against the uh, Belgian population. Uh, for example, an electric fence was constructed uh, on the northern border with the Netherlands uh, in 1914, I think, to uh, prevent Belgians from escaping the occupied country. But uh, stories were invented in the American and British press to incite the populations against the German Empire, like babies being uh, skewered on bayonets, very similar to the sort of uh, propaganda produced around uh, the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait to uh, propel American intervention in that war. Uh, and this was very success successful in uh, creating this war fervor in America and England against uh, the central powers, which were seen as this unambiguous uh, evil uh, in, in much the same way that the Axis powers still are to this day. And, you know, there, there could be some more truth in the second part. There were a lot of more uh, real war crimes committed by the Axis powers in the Second World War compared to the Central Powers in the first. But the perception of the Central Powers in the immediate post-war era was very much almost identical to the perception of the Axis powers to this day. Uh, and this was seen as a flaw by uh, many of the leading figures in the allied nations because they now wanted to adjust their foreign policy. Uh, Germany was now a democracy in the Weimar era. Uh, Central Europe was completely reshaped. New treaties had to be made. There had to be a realignment after the First World War. And so historians went to work uh, debunking some of the uh, claims and the, the historical narrative around the First World War came uh, was starting to be deconstructed around the 1920s, 1930s, pr primarily by progressive historians, liberal historians, who were never really all that caught up with the jingoistic uh, fervor of the First World War. Uh, Ch and, Charles, let me just interject really quickly, and I'll let you, I'll let you continue. Uh, but in uh, 1935 the Nye Committee 
issued its final report. The Nye Committee was a special committee in the United States Senate presided over by Gerald Nye, who was a progressive Republican senator from North Dakota. And the Nye Committee was officially called the, quote, Special Committee on Investigation of the Munitions Industry. And what Nye and his uh, colleagues concluded on the committee was that U.S. entry into World War II had been unduly influenced and egged along by the self-interested, cynical profit motive of the munitions industry. And funnily enough, I've been watching after people demanded that I do this, and I figured, okay, no problem. I, I, I've been watching, I'm about halfway through this uh, documentary series that was just published on, just released on the Holocaust by Ken Burns, uh, The U.S. and the Holocaust, happened to by coincidence coincide with this whole discussion of mine. Um, and actually, this uh, committee report is referenced in passing in the documentary and as sort of emblematic of U.S. isolationist sentiment at the time, isolationist is always the word used, um, which is, of course, like an inherently pejorative word. Um, And in the documentary, it's not remarked on one way or another in substance whether or not the findings of Nye and his committee were accurate. And... You know, there was a huge body of literature, as you're alluding to, during that time, which suggested it was accurate, or at least it had accuracy and wasn't some crazed theory that had no validity whatsoever. So it was notable to me that in this documentary, which I'm not discounting as having no value, there are some, there's some interesting uh, footage in it, um, and parts of it are, are compelling and, and well done, uh, but to just flippantly cite this belief that had emanated from the Nye Committee, uh, again, which wasn't just a bunch of crazed pro-German pamphleteers on the sidewalk. It was, official, it was a committee of the U.S. Senate. Um, to just deny that, to, to portray it as though it was, you know, presumptively wrong for, that, for this belief to happen in circulation, that, yeah. that is not sustainable to me uh, either. Anyway, go continue. So... And if you wouldn't uh, mind, and if you wouldn't mind, just so we can. What get I was to saying was a lot of possible. these voices and trying. Charles, if, uh, Charles, if, Charles, if you don't mind, uh, just which I, would be called revisionists, but, and revisionist yeah. is sort of like a bad word nowadays because it's been connected with Holocaust denial. Uh, but revisionist revisionism just means tweaking an earlier interpretation of history so that it's more nuanced. It fits the factual record, and that's what they were trying to do with World War One and. Then around the 1930s, the Nazi party comes to power. German uh, foreign policy radically changes. And the Roosevelt administration is now gearing up for another world war. And a lot of these progressive liberal critics of jingoism and the good versus evil narrative of the First World War uh, are sort of silenced. They're brushed to the side. And this trajectory of moving towards a new, new, a more nuanced and objective view of the First World War disappears, and the good versus evil dichotomy of uh, Uncle Sam versus the the Hun, the Kaiser, sort of comes back when the Kaiser is replaced by Hitler, and this. 
And Charles, just to interject again, you know, it doesn't entirely disappear. One thing I've been trying to point out is that this caricature of non-interventionist sentiment at the time as being wholly um, like emblematized by figures like Lindbergh and Fort is inaccurate. Is inaccurate. There was a vociferous uh, left-wing oriented non-interventionist sentiment um, as personified by figures like Norman Thomas, who didn't give up his, you know, who didn't uh, undergo this evolution that you're saying others might have. You know, I, I put a quote in my article um, from, by uh, the, one of the, the first socialists, uh, one of the first socialists ever elected to Congress. Actually, he, he wasn't a member of the Socialist Party. He was a member of the Labor Party, which was a tiny party, but he was elected to Congress in um, New York City, Vito Marcantonio, who during this Lend-Lease debate on January 23rd warned that, quote, these armaments, meaning the armaments that were being accelerated in their provision by Lend-Lease, would, quote, be used as a vehicle which of its own momentum would catapult us into this war. Now, uh, Marcantonio did change his view about U.S. entering into the war after uh, Germany invaded the Soviet Union and uh, declared support for U.S. entry by October. Uh, but his original prognostication in January was not rendered incorrect by that. He was correct that Lend-Lease was being used as a vehicle to get the U.S. into the war. His moral judgment of that issue had simply changed. But others didn't change at all. Norman Thomas, for example, was stridently opposed to uh, Stalinism. And Norman Thomas didn't change his view on whether the, uh, the U.S. ought to enter the war, on U.S. entry into the war until Pearl Harbor. In fact, the day before Pearl Harbor, and I just posted an excerpt of this on Twitter, the day before Pearl Harbor, Thomas reiterated his position yet again in a letter to the New York Times on December 6th. Uh, but then once Pearl Harbor, news of Pearl Harbor broke, Thomas withdrew the letter. Okay? So, um, even if, yes, you're, you're correct that to some degree there was this change in attitude amongst the more progressive factions of society as to the interpretation of World War I and what bearing that had on World War II, there was also a faction that didn't change markedly, uh, and those factions tend to be obscured or ignored or denied that they even existed because it's more politically convenient today to act like non-interventionist sentiment was wholly embodied by figures like Lindbergh and Ford, given their crude uh, uh, beliefs on other issues and given that they could be said to have been Nazi uh, sympathizers or fascist sympathizers in the case of Lindbergh and, and Ford clearly were. Um, so by, by falsely construing them as the, old, like the, the chief exemplars of the sentiment, there's this, quote, revisionism happening uh, that, you know, uh, disregards people as central to American politics as Norman Thomas. I mean, even though Norman Thomas ran for president on the Socialist Party, the Socialist Party nominee on six occasions, he was prominent enough. That he was hugely celebrated you know, later in his life as a, as a clairvoyant moral voice, and he was uh, invited to testify to Congress about the advisability of the Lend-Lease Bill, testified stridently against it. Um, and yes, Lindbergh also was brought to testify, but so was Thomas. So why is Thomas being disregarded while Lindbergh is emphasized to the hilt? Uh, well, it's because there's a political 
logic behind that emphasis. Anyway, sorry, continue. Uh, and if you don't mind, Charles, if you could just get to the ultimate point a little quickly so we could get to oh, as many yeah. people as possible. Yeah, okay, well, the, my, my main point that I was getting to is that this goes back a lot earlier than uh, just the early 1940s, which you know are, is sort of like where Roosevelt's most bold-faced lies about German and Japanese intentions originate from. Uh, his claims that uh, American shipping was being attacked by the Kriegsmarine or that uh, Japan's uh, was not negotiating over the oil embargo or was being completely irrational and attacked Pearl Harbor and invaded the Dutch East Indies for no reason whatsoever uh, is just sort of completely false. I mean, even a lot of modern historians and not even like emergent uh, revisionist ones, except that uh, he deliberately provoked Japan into attacking the United States as a backdoor into the war in Europe. But it goes back far uh, earlier than that. Uh, as early as 1939, Roosevelt instructed his ambassador to France. Uh, what was his name here? I have it on another tab. Um, William Bullitt in the summer of 1939. Uh, this is from a letter by Vern Marshall, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning editor of former editor of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Uh, says, President Roosevelt wrote a note to William Bullitt in the summer of 1939, then ambassador to France, directing him to advise the French government that if, in the event of a Nazi attack on Poland, France and England did not go to Poland's aid, those countries would expect no help from America if a general war developed. On the other hand, if France and England immediately declared war on Germany, they could expect all aid from the United States. And this is corroborated in letters from the Polish uh, foreign office uh, after it was raided by German troops in 1939 following the invasion with Polish diplomats essentially saying uh, the United States told us and they told the French and the British that if they didn't give Poland their full backing, the United States wouldn't in turn back them with supplies. And the effects of that were that Poland was emboldened not to negotiate with Germany over the Danzig issue, uh, which was an ethnic German city that uh, Germany wanted to annex and build a road connecting the East Prussian enclave with the rest of Germany. Uh, because Poland was backed by Britain, the world's number one superpower, they felt that they did not have to negotiate over that issue and eventually it developed into a war. And it was allowed to develop into a war because the United States uh, put pressure on Britain to give Poland that guarantee. And so the parallel with today is that this is exactly what happened with Ukraine. The United States gives Ukraine this uh, unconditional support, and the result is that Ukraine refuses to negotiate with Russia, and a war develops. And so the, you know, the folklorist interpretation of oh this is just like world war ii isn't all that wrong it sort of is like world war ii again uh only we're, we're not uh this uh interpretation of events the the traditional 
mythologized version of World War II, that we're play acting uh, the good guys in this in this story that was written, which, unlike the First World War, still hasn't really evolved and to become more nuanced and objective. You know, after World War II ended, the First World War has sort of it became a lot less important in uh, the foundational myth of the modern Western world. So we do now have a more nuanced view of, of World War One, where the central powers weren't as bad as they were formerly portrayed. But the, the view of World War Two hasn't evolved really at all since 1945. Uh, if anything, it's become even more uh, intertwined with propaganda and it's it's leading the world right now into down the road to a nuclear war because our leaders aren't thinking rationally. We're treating Russia the same way that uh, we were treating Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, only the difference is Germany in, in the 1930s and 40s didn't have nuclear weapons. And well, so and the also the Germany, and also and also the Germany in the 1930s and 40s genuinely was undertaking oppressive measures against its Jewish population. Yes, um, I I would defy someone to cite a defensible analogy, uh, contemporary contempor in a contemporary sense, for what Russia is doing to any member of its any faction of its population that, you know, equals what Germany was genuinely doing to the Jews uh, during that period. Um, not to say there aren't any problems with how Russia treats different demographics of its citizenry, um, but I'm not aware of anything that anyone even argues is on the scale of what genuinely was occurring uh, in Nazi Germany as to the... Um, you know, persecution of, of Jews, you know, as uh, exemplified by incidents like uh, Crystal Knot and so forth. Yeah, well, uh, I think I, I wasn't really talking about the moral equivalency of uh, no, 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 I know. Hitler, but uh, the, the terms of unconditional surrender is another part of the World War II mythology. It was just an un, undeniably good thing that the only terms we offered Germany and Japan were complete abdication of their sovereignty and full occupation and the uh, dissolution or temporary dissolution of their governments so that the allied powers had complete power over their populations. This isn't really, this was completely unprecedented or in modern warfare. Uh, it wasn't, even the end of World War I was still technically a conditional armistice albeit one enforced uh, with a blockade that almost induced a famine. But uh, World War II could have ended a lot earlier had the terms of unconditional surrender not been uh, made at the Casablanca Conference in 1943. There was a large conspiracy of anti-Hitler generals in Germany that almost succeeded in assassinating Hitler in 1944, uh, once it was clear that the war was lost and they had no chance of victory. But the terms offered by the Allies gave them no reason not to fight to the death because the Allied terms were basically, we're going to dissolve Germany as a sovereign country 
And then the Morgenthau plan leaked, and which additionally, after we dissolve you as a country, we're going to kill 20 million of your people and really wipe Germany off the face of the map. So why wouldn't Germany fight to the end in 1945? Uh, they had no reason not to after these messages were sent to them by the Allied powers. And this is part of the World War II mythology that never really gets criticized. Uh, and it's informing decision-making now. You, you hear people at these uh, uh, NGO think tanks talking about the decolonization of Russia, the, uh, you the know, breaking the, apart the breaking of Russia, apart as, of Russia as, a, as a sovereign was, entity. We're going to give Chechnya independence. We're going to make right. this independent Siberian the Republic. That was published the... And that was published. That, that, when that, Russia that hears these things, the they're thinking, well, yeah. they don't want our country to exist at all. They're not, we're not offering them any terms. And, and unfortunately, if they do lose this war in Ukraine, I don't think that they're going to stop fighting. And it's this mythologized narrative of World War II, I think, that's, that's motivating uh, this line of thinking. Well, uh, thank you for that, Charles. Um, you seem to have a breadth of knowledge on this subject uh, that uh, accords, I guess, with the with the thrust of what I'm trying to communicate here. Um, I also want to point out that uh, nowhere did you uh, absolve Nazi Germany of moral culpability for anything, or nowhere no, I, did I, I you think... assign causal blame to the U.S. for such events as no, it, the acceleration of the Holocaust. Am I right? No, I, I'm, I'm not a Holocaust denier. Uh, <laughs> I, it's really so stupid when you try to tell a nuanced, non-black and white uh, narrative or story of history, and immediately what they throw at you is, oh, you, you think the Holocaust was good, huh? Or, or, you, or, you know, two things can be true at once. It can be true that uh, Nazi Germany murdered millions of Jewish civilians in Europe during the Second World War. Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was less than six, but the, it, it can also be true that... Well, the official, I mean, the, the, the official estimate that tends to be used is five and a half million, isn't it? Or 5.4 is, is lower okay, conservative. 5. 5. And, and the six, okay. I, I could go on on where the six number really came from. Which actually goes okay, back well, to the 18th. I mean, that doesn't. Or, that's not particularly relevant. That, that's neither here nor there. But, uh, and that was a bad thing. That was a very bad thing that all these innocent people were murdered. But it can also be true that uh, this was accelerated by the U.S. entry into the war, which confirmed Hitler's theory that, that this Jewish conspiracy was, or in his mind. Uh, confirmed uh, the idea that there was an international conspiracy of uh, what he called international finance jewelry centered in the United States. Uh, Which included the Soviet Union. I, I actually think that Hitler sort of understood that Jews had been purged from the Soviet Union uh, under Stalin uh, and that the Judeo-Bolshevism was something that he really did believe in the 1920s when uh, 
revolutions like uh, Bela Kunz in Hungary or the Spartacists in Germany, which all right, I can tell people are getting a, a okay, yeah. <laughs> <Let's>... <laughs> all right, just just wrap up, uh, Charles, so we can move on. But I appreciate your contribution. Right. Like, what's your, uh, well, give a concluding thought, if you don't mind. I think it's about time that a nuanced view of the Second World War is developed. It's been 70, 80 years, and just we're just now starting to see the beginnings of revisionist books like uh, Stalin's War by McMeekin or uh, Brendan Sims' biographies are just starting to tell a slightly different story, but it needs to happen faster because... Uh, I, I think there's a chance that our leaders are going to lead us into a, a, a nuclear war with Russia over this really retarded, uh, infantile, good versus evil story that they've been telling themselves for almost a century. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would add, and uh, thanks, Charles, is that well, I, I'm struck in my review of the more recent scholarship, beating scholarship from the past approximately 10 years, uh, that it is introducing a far more, quote, revisionist interpretation than one might have thought was viable if, like I was, you were taught the sort of conventional rendering of World War II as a school child, maybe in the 90s or early 2000s. Not that there was never any revisionism prior during the 90s or 2000s or before that, uh, but but I do have to say I'm I'm, I'm struck by how much of the material that I've consulted, again, in wholly mainstream, reputable sources on these issues um, is from the past, let's say, 15 or so years. So um, if people have not undertaken like a systemic review, systematic review of the literature uh, since in the past 15 years or so, uh, it's, I think it partially explains why you'd have such a ferocious reaction uh, or why such a ferocious reaction will be prompted to the sort of chronology and analysis that I've been uh, presenting uh, over the course of the past week or so. Um, all right, thanks, Charles. Uh, Mama, you are up. Please unmute. Hey, um, I just wanted to see... There? Um... Mama, uh, if uh, I think you might have accidentally brought yourself off the stage, uh, feel free to come back um, if you'd like. Uh, I did not eject you for the record. Okay, Pierre, you're up. Hey, Michael, I read your article. Thanks for taking okay. my call. And by the way, let me just preface what Pierre is about to say uh, by saying myself that Pierre, I, I believe, is a good faith critic of me most of the time. He's... Uh, come onto these call-ins on numerous occasions. Um, I think I've seen him on Twitter. I'm not 100% sure if it's the same person, but if it is, um, he he makes uh, criticisms of me that I don't regard to be, you know, exceedingly uh, vitriolic or uh, impugning of motive. Um, and so whatever criticism I suspect he's about to make now, I'm going to presumptively um, uh, operate uh, as, presumptively regard as, um, you know, substantive, reasonable criticism. So go ahead, Pierre. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and I, I did read your article. Um, and first off, I do, I am very sympathetic to your argument that, you know, World War II 
shouldn't be used as this rhetorical tool that politicians can weaponize to rationalize current foreign policy decisions made by the United States. Um, and I think it is pretty well established that the U.S. did not enter the war to prevent or stop the Holocaust um, directly, at least. Um, and their geopolitical interest was to defeat Hitler and, you know, to aid Britain and France. But I think it's, it's, it's considered, quote unquote, the good war, not because of that um, or not because of they wanted to stop the Holocaust. It's considered the good war because it just so happened that the geopolitical interest coincided with the defeat of Hitler, which ultimately did end the killing of Jews in in the um, in the Holocaust, so I feel I, I view it as sort of the exception that proves the rule in this case, and I think it's pretty common to challenge the uh, conduct of the war in, in terms of total war, um, but I don't agree that you can't separate the conduct of the war with the goal of um, defeating Hitler, and I think that when we go and we focus on like the um, the argument of acceleration and how U.S. caused the acceleration and taking the empirical evidence for that. So I would say that, like, um, if you're going to... Just to interject briefly, and when I'm interjecting people, I'm not cutting people, trying to cut people off. I'm just trying to make clarifying points. When you're talking about this argument as to acceleration, it's not strictly me making the argument. You'll grant that, right? It's a breadth of reputable mainstream academics... Yeah. Who are making the argument? Correct? I agree. Okay, right, thank you. but I don't think that the historians would necessarily draw the same conclusions that you might be drawing, at least implicitly. I think that which conclusion they're, is that? what they're doing. Well, the conclusion that I mean, I I, I don't want to get derailed in what I when I was trying to say, okay, but yeah, I, no, and I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, for example, they point out the reasons that Hitler said, "Oh." This is why we're doing, we feel like the U.S. is interviewing, we're going to speed things up, um, and then for whatever reason that's for. However, you have to look at other instances of where the, the Holocaust was ramped up, and the one that preceded the uh, extermination camp ramp up was the Holocaust by bullets by um, uh, Germany um, after, immediately after um, the invasion of the Soviet Union. So after the invasion of the Soviet Union, you know, these death squads came in at the same time. But what was the reason for... But I don't deny that. What was the invasion... What was the reason for that, that Germany stated for invading the Soviet Union? It was to open up living space for Germans. What was the reason that Jews were exterminated? Because they felt that there was a threat of Jewish Bolsheviks. And so they wanted to mass murder potential enemies. And so when historians cite that, they're not making this argument that like, well, this is valid. We should take inferences that, oh, because he causes, because they use that as an excuse, then maybe we shouldn't like push back against uh, Hitler because. Um, no, no, no. But I didn't say maybe we shouldn't put push back against Hitler. That's not my conclusion. Okay. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I guess I know I'm trying to under, un, Pierre. I'm trying to understand what conclusion you think it is that I've drawn that differs drastically from the conclusions drawn by the what you acknowledge is a wide 
range of mainstream reputable historians on this question? Well, they're concluding like causality in the sense of what led Hitler in his mind to think, okay, I've got to take specific action for this reason. But the thing is, is that like, right. So, but the takeaway from that, I don't think the historians would say, well, um, Hitler would have killed less Jews if they hadn't take, if um, there hadn't been these actions. That's not my takeaway either. That's not my takeaway either. I mean, I, I, I don't know how much more clear I can be. That so I'm then why not, do you focus I'm not on asserting the a counterfactual. I'm not asserting a counterfactual. I'm just no, not. I understand. But if you're focusing on the acceleration without making some – and then if you're making a broader argument based on this acceleration causality, then right. what's the broader argument? Is it that they well, – here's, here's the broader argument, and tell me if you think this is reasonable. Okay. If it can be said that there is – Substantial reason to believe, based again on a wide range of mainstream scholarship, that U.S. entry to the war, culminating in formal U.S. entry after Pearl Harbor, were factors in the acceleration of the most lethal phase in the, of the Holocaust that manifested in the murdering of Jews by gas at the five major extermination camps, if it's true or if it could be reasonably surmised or posited that U.S. entry to the war was in fact an accelerating factor in that phase of the Holocaust, does that then complicate this assumption about U.S. entry into World War II, which you seem to agree with me is unfounded uh, that it had this unambiguous moral content because one of the reasons people think that U.S. entry into World War II had this unambiguous moral content is the supposedly mitigating f- uh, effect that U.S. entry had on the Holocaust, where we well, have a robust body of mainstream scholarship suggesting yeah, yeah. that it may well have been an accelerating factor in the Holocaust. So tell me right. where I'm in, in unreasonable. The short term, I think in the short term, you're correct. But I think okay, good. Thank you. But okay, but in the long run, what was the cause of the U.S. entering into the war? It was to defeat Hitler. Hitler was defeated. U.S. provided support, and it defeated Hitler. That was the long-term causality. And if you don't look at the long-term causality of the Holocaust ending, then yeah, you're going to say in the short term there was an acceleration, but in the long term there were less bod- there was a less body count. Unless you were, unless your argument is that. Unless your argument is that less Jews would have died if Hitler had been had been given a free hand, so yeah, you do have to consider the long term causality. Well, I'm not considering counterfactuals. That's okay? not a counterfactual. I'm You're being saying. beckoned. I'm being beckoned to give my opinion, speculative in a speculative sense, as to what would have happened if X didn't occur, or so forth, so on and so forth. I'm declining to do that. Everything that I've put forward over the course of this entire discussion has been factual rather than counterfactual. Now, Pierre, let me just ask you this. Okay. Do you agree with me that it can be reasonably cited as a complicating factor as to the unbridled moral unambiguity that people assign to U.S. entry into World War II that U.S. entry may well have had uh, been an accelerating effect on the commission of the Holocaust. Is it reasonable to cite that as one of many reasons why that um, unambiguous moral value uh, is uh, ascribed to U.S. entry? 
Well, I agree that it's it's okay to examine the historiography about what led Hitler to change the course of the Holocaust in response to U.S. intervention. But I don't agree that you can say that this is valid without saying that saying without acknowledging that without the without the U.S. intervention that the Holocaust wouldn't have ended as soon as it did. I mean, do you think the Holocaust would have ended? Uh, would do you think the Holocaust would have? you know, extended or do you think it ended earlier because the U.S. intervened or do you think it had no effect? I mean, I, I just don't see how you can. But I mean, Pierre, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not trying. I'm, I'm genuinely not trying to dodge you or not answer you directly. But I have to be insistent that what I'm examining is the actual chronology of what occurred. Right. But it's you're not, not a counterfactual well, speculation about what would have happened if the U.S. had not intervened or what course the Holocaust would have taken had the yeah. U.S. not intervened. Well, it's a fact you, that the U.S. You, intervened and, and, and there yeah. are certain uh, factual surmises drawn by reputable historians about the effects yeah. of that intervention. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested okay. in a counterfactual history. I'm just not. But you, but you deal with counterfactuals all the time when you talk what's about... What's an example? Okay, well, like, okay, you could say, well, what happened... If, if NATO hadn't expanded. Now, it's a totally separate thing. I'm not debating NATO and Ukraine, but you do counter, you do deal in counterfactual. But no, I don't. Even, but, but if but, NATO but, hadn't, Pierre, no, if, if I don't, NATO hadn't Pierre. expanded, Russia might not have invaded Ukraine. That's a... No, that's, that's not what... That's, I've never said that. I've never well, said that. that I've you, never said that. I've, I, I've, applied, I've applied the same, if you want to call it historiographical analysis, to the question of NATO expansion. The fact is... And NATO you draw expansion did occur, did occur, and then there are factual surmises that could be uh, drawn from that on the basis of evidence as to the actual chronology. There's no counterfactual right. speculation in my statements about uh, the effects of NATO expansion on Russia. It's so I apply but, the same, right. the same sort of heuristic, if you want to use a somewhat highfalutin term. I'm just saying you make broader arguments in some instances, but then in some instances you stick narrowly to the historiography of this narrow causality. You got to, you got to, you got to give me an example of when I allegedly did that because I, I, maybe I, if I, if I did, I'm not aware of having done it. What I'm consciously aware of having done is apply the the same mode of analysis to a question that's, you know, radically different, like NATO expansion's effect on Russia, as I have uh, here with the uh, U.S. intervention in World War II. Now, if you can give me an example when I haven't done that, which proves my inconsistency, I'm willing to see it, and maybe you'll be right. Maybe there is an instance where I was inconsistent, but I'm not aware of having done that. So that's why I would ask for a concrete example. Yeah, so in this case, the, the, the example I would give is you do make, a broader inference when you say you can't separate the conduct of the war from whether it was worth intervening. So you can't separate the fact that both sides, I would say both sides, engage in total war. Um, and, you know, the implications of Lend-Lease. And you can't sorry, separate how is that, that from whether it how was is that worth intervening. No, I'm just How saying is the fact that total war was, um, was the manner in which the war was conducted some sort of counterfactual argument? But the thread was talking about how you can't separate that from whether it was worth going into the war. So you're making a broader argument based right. on those circumstances. Right, but it's not a counterfactual argument. Well, I'm not saying it's an, it's, it's, it's an argument. It's an argument as to the actual chronology and facts of what occurred. 
Like, again, nothing about that argument requires uh, uh, speculative normative inferences about what, what may not judgments. have occurred. But yeah, it's a, normative it's a, judgments based on that evidence. It's not just history. You're, I you're agree. It's a normative. Well, yeah, a normative judgment. I agree. The normative judgment that I've that I've made. So what's your normative judgment that, of that causality between U.S. intervention and acceleration? What's the normative? What do you, what's your normative judgment based on that? The normative judgment is is as to whether World War II and U.S. U.S. entry into World War II can be cited as this example of unambiguous moral good in light of these factual chrono- chronological non-counterfactual uh, surmises that could be reasonably obtained about that sequence of events. That's the normative judgment. The normative judgment is expressly not that it was bad for the U.S. to have intervened. I'm not saying that. If I wanted to say it, I would just say it. I'm not sure why people have to assume that's what I really believe, as though I'm constrained in expressing what I really believe on the Internet. That is not my position. But because... when you say that the circumstances inform whether the decision to intervene is relevant, then I think that that is making some kind of broader argument. And so when you focus on this acceleration aspect, <coughs> when you focus on, see, when I, when I hear you repeatedly invoke this reason for negative, for the argument against intervention and, and focus solely on this acceleration. But hold on, but, but Pierre, I mean, hold on, I'm sorry. You seem to agree with me that the factors I've cited in the article and I guess elsewhere, um, support the normative point that I am making, which is that these this assumption of unmitigated virtue that is ascribed to U.S. entry is not nearly as sustainable as is popularly assumed. That's my normative assessment. And you seem well, to think- agree that that's a correct normative assessment. But I think your your criticism of, of how the U.S. engaged the war is pretty common. I think that that's not necessarily revolutionary to say, yeah, the U.S. I'm not saying it's revolutionary. I'm not I'm saying sorry. it's revolutionary. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's revolutionary. I mean, in the article itself, I say I don't claim to be breaking oh, okay. any new historical ground. Right. But I think uh, what... nonetheless, I don't have to say that a lot of people who read it um, – have told me, you know, and not just because they're trying to butter me up or, you know, flatter me or something, that they had never had these issues uh, spelled out in, yeah, uh, in, in this fair. way before, and that it, it actually did influence their perspective. I, I think that's fair, but I think that the problem is that when, when you focus on that causality and teasing out the circumstances of what Hitler stated rationale for acceleration to, you know, U.S. steps towards that, that you're making a more and then in other parts you're making more political arguments about it then yes i think it is reasonable for someone to say well what is your takeaway would less jews have died if if hitler wasn't defeated i think that that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask you people can ask that and then i'm i feel that it's perfectly reasonable for me to say that is a counter that for me to answer that question requires counterfactual speculation, it's and that is avowedly think, not what I'm engaging in. Here. I think that Hitler that wasn't. Hold on, Pierre. If you're saying, if you're saying, if you're saying, in the absence of U.S. intervention, would less Jews have been killed? How do you answer that question if not by counterfactual speculation? Because of the track record. I mean, Hitler had invaded 
several. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's it's a projection as to what would have occurred on a so counterfactual basis. Right. But so okay. So you're not making. How is that not a counterfactual? How how would answering your question not require counterfactual speculation? That's what I don't get. I think that. You're, you're presenting you would because you have yeah. to you, your answer would have to be facts that are counter to the actual the, chronology of what occurred. The facts is because we do know that in setting aside instances of acceleration between the U.S. intervention and the Holocaust, we do know other instances in which the Holocaust was accelerated for reasons completely separate, such as when the when uh, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. So there were other instances in which correct. The, yeah. So I think that that's not speculation. That's real. Like there were. Well, I'm not saying that, it's speculation that the there's evidence to show the Soviet Hitler Union been, was a yeah. was a factor in the acceleration of a different phase of the Holocaust. Yeah. So we I don't have, have to evidence. speculate to say that. Well, we have evidence to show that it doesn't just that his aggression and his deadly policies weren't just a result of U.S. intervention. Well, I'm not saying they're just a result. Right. I mean, the, 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 the excerpt that I, I don't know if you, I mean, you've read the article, and I'm assuming you've heard most of what I said in the yes. introductory remarks. I specifically read a quote from Gerlach where uh, he said that, you know, consistent with Hitler's foundational anti Semitic worldview, the entry of the U.S. into the war made the war a global war, and that therefore accelerated the process by which the mass extermination phase of the Holocaust as regards European Jewry Jewry was uh, was accelerated. I'm not saying that's... So, of course, among the factors cited in that formulation are Hitler's foundational anti-Semitic worldview. So none of what I've said here disregards that as a factor. Right. So if, if, if Hitler's saying before World War II and in the beginning that he wanted to do really bad things to the Jews... And, you know, maybe it didn't come down to he didn't specify extermination camps or death squads, but he wanted he identified them as the enemy and marked them for, you know, extermin for, you know, uh, some type of erasure um, that I don't know. I feel like that's a pretty good indication that like if it's I'm an indication saying, as to Hitler. Yeah, I mean, it's an, yeah. it's an indication. It's a Hitler's worldview. Uh, and an and antipathy so toward the Jews. But hold on, let me just ask you. Hold on, let me yeah. let me just let me just ask you this, yeah. and then we'll and not. I'm not trying to cut you off, but we do. I want to get as many okay. people in as possible. But but see, here's what Saul Friedlander, extremely, extremely eminent historian in the field, said in his 2017 book. And I'm, you must have read this if you read the article or have been following what I've been saying. But I want you to you Pierre to tell me what inference you think can reasonably be drawn from this in relation to this broader question that we're discussing. According to Friedlander, according to his assessment of the evidence, um, the fact, uh, a final quote, here's what Hitler, uh, sorry, Friedlander says, quote, a final decision had been made as a result of American entry into the war as to the extermination of the Jews. That's what Friedlander says. Not me. Friedlander, eminent historian, lived in occupied France, winner of all these myriad awards for his scholarly uh, inquiry into the subject. Uh-huh. What inference do you think can be reasonably made about that? About the... What about Friedlander's conclusion. That, that there was some measures taken by Hitler in response to U.S. intervention? Is that... Okay, <laughs> there we go. Well, what I'm trying to say is that 
that's a historian. Did, did, do you know what Freelander would, would say in response to whether you can make any inferences from that? I think that you're using historians who might not have the same opinion as you as to the conclusions that they take from their observations, which is fair. You're making an argument based off of the historian, but you can't fall right. back on the historian evidence and say, well, this proves my point without... I mean, I think the, the role of the historian... Hold, okay, so, but, so, but hold, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you think that the formulation presented there by Friedlander carries any weight in the one normative claim that I am making, which is that the unambiguous moral value ascribed to U.S. entry into World War II is not so easily sustained? I, I think the, um, there is ambiguity as to the conduct of the war and how things ex- ebbed and flowed and accelerated during the course of the war for the Holocaust. I don't think that it, it's making any judgment as to how deadly it would have been without the United States. And yeah, which is also a judgment I didn't make because but, that's a counterfactual. But it's, but it's not something that you're, you're contending with. When you make an, when you, when you, when you. You're right. I'm not contending with counterfactuals. I'm not. But I mean, if you can't, and if that can't be accepted, okay. But I'm just simply not contending with counterfactuals. I'm contending with, contending with the factual. But right. But you're not just a historian. You're a commentator who's trying to make a point about things. And so if you're going to make a point. About, but the point to, that I'm making is not contingent on any counterfactual. Okay. Anyway, it, Pierre, we, I, we, right. I think we've been over it. Thank you for contributing. And again, okay. I want to just reaffirm what I said when Pierre started, which is that I believe Pierre's engagement with me on this issue and other issues is uh, reasonable and not, you know, overly uh, personalized, vitriol or anything like that. Which is among, which is why I'm happy to, to, uh, to. To talk to him. Okay. So thanks, thanks for letting Pierre. me talk. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Pierre. All right, Paul, you are up. Uh, please unmute. Hi. Hi, Michael. Um, hey. This is Paul from South Africa. Um, yeah, sadly, <laughs> I'm actually here to agree with you. <laughs> Uh-oh. Here we go. Uh, yeah, I actually think that um, having studied World War II quite a lot, um, a lot of people are actually, they get a certain view of it, very Anglo-centric, very focused on Battle of Britain and so on. I think that is changing, but um, there's a, it's also suffused in a sort of glow of um, moral righteousness, as I think you um, point out. Is, is, it's, um, it's more complicated than that. I do think it, no... No side entered the war for moral reasons. They, um, they, they entered for reasons of empire and, um, and calculation. Like, um, like Churchill realized that, okay, you know, prior to the war, a lot of people actually sympathized with the Nazis, a lot of, German, um, a lot of British elites and, and American elites. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid to say that the... Um, the welfare of the Jews was not high on their priorities. Um, they um, they just really couldn't care less. It's like when all these Russians died. It wasn't a a major thing at all. Um, you'll still see today in the historiography, it's not a big thing. Well, I mean, for some people anyway. But um, <clears throat> well, I mean, just to interject quickly, Paul. I mean, mm-hmm. having watched uh, at least the first half of this. 
uh, Ken Burns documentary series that by coincidence was released in the past uh, week or so uh, as I've been discussing this topic. Uh, I mean, it is, it is, it's not the case that there was zero concern in the United States, even in elite sections of society for the welfare of Jews uh, in Nazi Germany. Um, now, it may not have been the reason why war was formally declared in December of 1941 or anything, uh, but it at least should be noted that there was okay. a faction of society uh, for whom uh, that concern did exist. Now, what relation that concern had on formal entry into the war, um, you know, that was escalating in, uh, you know, uh, properly by, by 1941, uh, difficult to say, but the concern okay, did fine. exist to, to varying degrees. But I mean, even after the war, when um, when a lot of Jews were languishing in prison of war camps, uh, there wasn't really, they didn't care. People didn't care. And and a lot of these um, refugee boats were, were turned away by the by Great Britain and and, um, and and the U.S. and that effectively condemned a lot of people to death. Um, but you know, like it, it certainly is complicated. It, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of worms you've opened here, because I'm glad that the war was fought to end the Nazis and all that, but the actual conduct of the war was also questionable. You know, you have to actually look at that and say, like, um, like prior to World War II, you know, the idea of, of bombing civilians was considered, like, atrocious. Like, Guernica, like, shocked the world, you know. Except when it was done to Iraqis and that, that, that didn't matter so much. But, you know, World War II kind of normalized all of that. And um, I really think it's, it's it's terrorism, really. What what you do when you when you're bombing civilians, um, and like you know, you got to look at the way the Allies were. Like they were actually highly authoritarian <laughs> during the war, um, to a very high degree. Like like for example, here in South Africa, um, every day at five p.m., you were supposed to pray for the victory of the Allies like two minutes or whatever there was supposed to be a silence i mean it's just actually quite interesting when you and and i think you're correct to say that the entry of the war was was a was a result of manipulation by the leadership like any war they didn't um it wasn't democratic at all it was just you know um well not not i, I, I wouldn't say it was I wouldn't say that U.S. entry into the war was a sole result of manipulation by the leadership. But what I would say is that escalating U.S. intervention in the war was taken in concert with a deliberate campaign of deception. Now, that does that mean that there was no sentiment in the country that actually favored U.S. entry into the war? No, but if you just look at the at the record of the public statements that were made and then transmitted through the media throughout 1940 and then into into 1941 and up to Pearl Harbor, I don't see how it can be reasonably denied by anyone that the nature of escalated U.S. intervention was presented to the public in a manner that was false. Um, and, you know, and there, I give several uh, examples of that in the article, uh, including mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, the 
one of the instances of naval warfare that was conducted in the fall of 1941, um, initiated by Roosevelt on his order, in which a U.S. warship attacked a German ship, uh, one of those incidents uh, that was falsely portrayed to the public as an example of proactive aggression by Germany on the U.S. Uh, was cited by Roosevelt um, not just to further escalate U.S. intervention in the war, but Roosevelt used one of those instances, uh, the Kearney, if I'm not mistaken, it was either the Kearney or the Reuben James, uh, used it to go before the public and declare that he, Roosevelt, had received uh, information that Nazi Germany planned to uh, basically conquer South America and Central America. Uh, Roosevelt said that his information for this was a map that had been obtained, and this meant that Nazi designs were also on the U.S., which effectively meant that Roosevelt was communicating to the public that Nazi Germany planned to conquer um, the U.S. And this document, this map that Roosevelt claimed he had, uh, only years later was it demonstrated that the map was a forgery. So if that's not an act of official deception on the part of the state officials guiding the war effort uh, on the American public, I don't know what would be. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's, 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 uh, and then also there's an interesting question as to like, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting philosophical questions here. Actually, if you if you look at the background to the Pacific War, um, as I'm sure you know as well, there's a. It's not as just as black and white as as Japan was aggressive. I mean, that was um, expected. Actually, I actually still need to review some of the points in your article that you mentioned now. But it it sounds good. You know, it sounds perfectly reasonable what you're saying. But, um, yeah, you know, and on, on the Pacific War, you know, Chomsky in uh, 1967 published an article that's still accessible on his uh, website, Chomsky.info, oh, if people are interested. Read that. Where, yeah, where, yeah, well, well yeah, where he, he, he gets into this very it's issue very of article. the non black and white nature of the, uh, you know, who instigated the Pacific War, what the posture of the U.S. Mm-hmm. was versus uh, Japan. He, Chomsky points out that. Uh, Japan, in its negotiations that were ultimately abrogated uh, by the U.S. right up before Pearl Harbor, that Japan, among other things, um, offered the U.S. non-discrimination in commercial uh, relations uh, as relates to China. This was uh, denied with the you know inference from Chomsky being that the U.S. wanted total control of that, those commercial spheres, whereas mm-hmm. Japan had been encroaching on the U.S. ability to uh, command that yeah. total control. And if you also look so, at you know, the, the U.S. conduct after the war, because they reinstalled a lot of fascist uh, sympathizers and ex-fascist collaborators and, and really tried to destroy democracy all over the world because... Uh, that wasn't that wasn't really what they wanted. They wanted a global empire um, in their interest, but that's a whole other issue. But but it's um, it's all very interesting. I mean, when when I learned about I learned a lot about I'm, I'm very interested in history, so I studied a lot of World War Two. You know, a lot of people don't know about the phony war, about the total betrayal of Poland, um, very cynical, and the betrayal of the betrayal at Munich as well. 
I mean, the Western Allies they really were quite sympathetic to to Hitler and let him get away with a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Paul. Uh, let's go to uh, Shane. Shane, you're next. Please unmute. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, yeah. Just uh, first off, like, thanks for having this conversation. It's, like, really interesting. Um, unlike some of your other listeners, I don't have, like, super encyclopedic knowledge of World yeah. War II. <laughs> like, I'm, like, hats off to you guys to be able to rattle off all this history so quickly. But um, if I'm not mistaken, like, it was that they were trying to get into World War One earlier, right? The West, specifically the United States. But the isolationist thing was a lot stronger then. So the U.S. like didn't get into World War One until it was basically winding down. Does that sound right? Um, I mean, I'm sure people could quibble with that characterization. It seems roughly correct to me, and it's like broad thrust. Yeah, so, like, basically that's what World War II, like, what you're describing in your article and, like, what this conversation has been about was about making sure that that didn't happen. And, you know, when you were talking with Pierre and you guys were going back and forth, I was kind of feeling like maybe, like, because it seemed like he agreed with you in a lot of ways. Um, And maybe what I saw the disconnect as is, like, I, you know, it's hard to say this without sounding like too much of a conspiracy nut or something, but like there was a lot of U.S. investment in Nazi Germany, right? Like corporate investment. Like corporate. I mean, that's not a conspiracy at all. I mean, in this in this documentary that I've been been watching, uh, watched the first part of, you know, they go over at least a part of the history of that to show the culpability of American corporate interests in the sustainment and uh, rearmament of of Nazi Germany throughout the 30s. So there's nothing conspiratorial about that statement. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I guess I I shouldn't qualify it like that. You know, you just talk to people in real life and sometimes they get kind of thrown by that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, I should have known that, you know, you're up on it. Anyway, like, I think the dis, what I saw is the disconnect between you and Pierre is that like, it was like the U.S. wanted to get into the war kind of as a way, like like when you talk about deposing Hitler, I kind of almost hear that as an analogy for like, um, like li- not liquidating their investment, but kind of like coming back for it in a way, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure if I would exactly phrase it that way. Uh, but I, I see what you're getting at. Because yeah. it kind of like Hitler went off the rails. Like he he went way further than anybody was like kind of expecting. Like I think the U.S. thought that they could like build up. Like because I also think the characterization that like, oh, yeah, they only did World War Two because they wanted to do Bretton Woods is a little reductive. Like I think it kind of accelerated, like Hitler accelerated it to the point where they were like, oh, we're going to have to go in and like, fix this problem and then you had this like massive change in you know world order and stuff but um yeah i sorry my point was i just kind of wanted to see if that intuition seemed like like i, I guess i wanted to ask your question 
ask the question, like, does that intuition seem intuitive? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't think that your intuition is a wholly implausible one. Uh, I think, I mean, I could imagine, and again, I don't purport to be some uh, sort of comprehensive scholar on this subject where I've examined every part of the literature sure, and, and sure. you know, um, but I think, you know, your, your intuition, uh, I think, um, could be, re- would be reflected to some degree in, in, in parts of the, you know, reputable literature and scholarship. I know that uh, that sounds like a dodge, uh, then, no. okay. I guess I just don't want to like say on my own accord that I oh, agree no, with that sure. because, um, yeah, I don't really have a found, uh, a foundation that I would find to be comprehensive enough to, to say so. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Shane. It's actually yeah, good to yeah. hear from someone who has a less encyclopedic knowledge of World War II because, you know, that's, uh, you know, one of the audience, uh, a part of the audience, hopefully, that was, uh, would have read a, an article like this. Now, the, the next caller, I believe, is uh, Jonathan, um, who is a journalist and who I am not exaggerating when I say has been psychotically obsessed with personally disparaging me for years, uh, I think probably six years at this point. My recollection is the first time he sought to personally disparage me in incredibly, again, personalized terms was uh, 2016. Um, He's kept up with it over the years. And, um, you know, he has uh, a certain compulsion toward me, which makes it so that any engagement he carries out with uh, what I'm saying or reporting or uh, opinionating, um, it's always shot through with this incredibly personalized vitriol, which uh, to me is not particularly conducive to uh, substantive discussion. Um, I don't have any personalized vitriol for for him, but I'm, 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 this is just a prelude because I'm going to have him come up and, and speak. Um, and just to give one example of this, uh, just from the past week, he says that uh, I, he, he, Katz, Jonathan Katz, who's this caller coming up, alleged on September 19th that I supposedly claimed that, quote, the Jews uh, were responsible for the Holocaust. Now, if anybody in even who has the slightest amount of rationality, who's been following this conversation, who read the article and so forth, sincerely believes that... I've alleged the Jews are responsible for the Holocaust, then uh, that's some sort of demented, psychotic obsession with me informing that statement, not anything to do with the actual substance. But that all being said, I am now going to go to Jonathan here because uh, yeah, well, even, even, just, even, I'll, even I'll, despite, even despite his, even despite like, his, I really appreciate your work. Well, thank you. I, well, thank you. I really, but, when people get like that, I just, I think it's unfortunate. So yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that. that. I was going to say, even despite, even despite Jonathan's bitter hatred, bitter personal hatred of me that he's expressed on countless occasions for six years straight, uh, I'm nonetheless uh, going to have him come up here because uh, I will engage with him without while striving to not uh, be reciprocal in his personal attacks um, and uh, respond on the substance as best I can. So uh, that, with that, Jonathan, you're up. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for the long preamble. 
uh, which I think is, I think is actually somewhat illustrative of your general uh, affect in terms of like making arguments. You claim that you're not doing something when you're actually doing it. You claim you're not making a personal attack on me while you're calling me psychotic. But you know, we can move past that. Um, how would you characterize? How would you characterize your? I don't know. Would you say a fixation? Would you say a focus? Emphasis? Would like, how would you? Say, how would you describe it for the past six years? Uh, when I read your things, <laughs> I disagree with them, and uh, you don't. So no personal. You haven't. You haven't. You haven't launched personal attacks on me. Like I read your piece that you were citing. You call me a New Jersey blogger. Uh, you talk Are about you not stuff. from New Jersey? I didn't realize that was an insult. So you're saying you're saying when you characterize me as a New Jersey blogger, you weren't intending to be personally pejorative toward me? I, I on on I, I I think that many people in New Jersey would take exception to to that. To that okay, but you so you so so you said nothing personally pejorative toward me for the. All right, Michael, can we years. talk? Can we can we can we talk about? Can we talk well, about I mean, I just want to establish that you know whatever you're saying is. Okay. Okay. Some you want to be reflective of? Go ahead. Okay. Let's go to the substance. Let's go to the substance, Jonathan. Go ahead. You want to do? You want to just? You want to pretend like this is me doing ad hominem to you, but then you just all you want to talk about? No, no, that's not what I'm pretending at all. I'm inviting you now to go into the substance. Okay. So thank you. So this, I thought that your your conversation with with Pierre was interesting, and I thought that he brought up some some very good points. And, you know, he, he, he kept trying to, and I feel like this is really what, what people have been trying to do uh, with you on this issue and just in general, is just to try to get you to just say out loud what you're saying, the argument that you're making. You say that you don't want to engage in counterfactual, even though your argument that the United States accelerated the Holocaust is itself definition well that's not my argument that's an argument that is found in a wide array of reputable mainstream literature argument right? that it's an argument that you're cherry picking from people like richard evans and christian gerlach you're 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 taking does that argument exist in the mainstream literature or not whether or not i quote cherry picked it i'm not sure what that means well what i'm saying is that the idea is that the united like the united states action but jonathan does that does, does that argument exist in the literature christian gerlach did look at Goebbels, and by the way, it's pronounced Goebbels. I've been listening long enough. That I, just so you know. I know. I know. I, 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 I'm aware that I mispronounced it. So, so, so Christian Gerlach looked at Goebbels' diary because this was, this, this was at, the, uh, at, the, at the outset of decades of conversation and argument about the degree to which the responsibility for the final solution itself could be laid at the feet of Adolf Hitler. And he found this site, this mention in Goebbels diary that that on December 12th, 1941, Hitler, using Hitler's own logic, said that this had now become a world war. This is, this is just how Hitler. Correct. Ended, right. This is this is not necessarily true, but you you take it as true. that this had I don't take it. Gerlach. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, Jonathan, we have to establish. That citing quotes from. Uh, German officials up into up to including Hitler or okay. Japanese officials is me not is not me taking the word of those officials okay. unless so did, every so historian did. ever who cited those words is also taking at their word what is contained in those quotes because that's what so you accused did. me of in your Twitter thread. So did so did the United States so, so did Hitler's decision to declare war on the United States. First of all, you agree that Hitler declared war on the United States and not the other way around, right? 
Hitler is the one who first formally declared war on the United States, but as is made clear in the literature, upon the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor, Hitler regarded himself to be at war with the United States. And as far back as May March of 1941, on the enactment of Lend-Lease, Hitler viewed that action by the U.S. as, as a reinforcement of his view uh, that world war with the United States was an inevitability. But so in terms of who, think, in terms so of who made the Hitler, first formal declaration, you, of course, think, yes, it was do Hitler. You think that Hitler. Do you think that Hitler declared war on the United States as an act of self-defense? I've never said anything like I'm that. I'm asking you. I'm asking you. I know I don't know what you've said before or not. I'm actually not as familiar with Do I think it was an act of self-defense? Yes. I, I have no basis for stating that. I've never stated anything like that. So you don't no. think that Hitler declared war on the United States as an act of self-defense? I know the reasons that were stated for why Hitler declared war on the United States. Among the reasons he stated were those three incidents of naval warfare. Uh, and he also believed that Roosevelt was taking part in an international uh, Jewish conspiracy to destroy Germany. Those are the reasons that he stated for his declaration of war. Right, I'm not sure why it would order. fall to me to say to give some kind order. of like normative judgment on order. why do Hitler. Like, are, are do those? Do you, do you agree that those are the reasons stated? Do you agree that those are the reasons stated by Hitler for why he declared war? Do you think? I'm I'm asking you. This is the, this is the thing. Is you can you can quote somebody, but you can quote somebody critically, or you can quote them uncritically. And I'm trying to figure out what you're doing here. So when you say that Hitler used the uh, existence of an alleged international Jewish conspiracy to manipulate the United States Soviet Union and a, and and a pre-existing state of war between the U.S. and Germany. What's that? In addition to a pre-existing state of war between the U.S. and Germany. Okay, so but I'm, I'm taking this in reverse order. We'll get to that in a second. I just want to know, do you think that there was an international Jewish conspiracy to manipulate the United States, the Soviet Union, and the UK into making war on Germany? See, see this is, I mean, Jonathan, this is an absurd question. Of course, of course I don't think that. Of course I don't think that. I, okay, I don't good. think there was an good. international Jewish conspiracy at all. Good. That's Excellent. an absurd Excellent. concept. Excellent. So to try okay. to associate me okay. with okay. that okay. belief is lunacy. And it's another indication of your deranged personal hatred of me as demonstrated by your allegation from a couple of days ago where you, you allege that I claim that the Jews were responsible for the Holocaust. I mean, do you stand by that statement? Calm down. I'm perfectly calm. I'm, I'm raising the tenor of my voice because I want to underscore the lunacy in you even suggesting that I have a personal belief in an international Jewish conspiracy. Okay, so that is preposterous. You think a state of war existed between the United States and Germany prior to Hitler's declaration of war on December 11th? I think beyond a reasonable doubt, the factual record demonstrates that on uh, three occasions, the U.S. had initiated naval warfare against German sea craft. I mean, do you deny that? Well, they didn't. I mean, the, 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 the investigation, for instance, into the USS Greer was that the, was that the Kriegsmarine fired on the U.S. ship. The consensus view as to the USS Greer is that a British plane was tracking a German submarine. Mm -hmm. um, it then signaled the U.S. Uh, ship to pursue the German submarine. 
Uh, that pursuit happened for about three hours. Uh-huh. And then the British plane dropped a weapon on the German U-boat attempting to strike it um, while the U.S. ship was in pursuit. Now, Kroc, the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, uh-huh. uh claims that the U.S. initiated the attack and that actually uh, the U.S. boat uh, fired upon the German boat first, or at the very least initiated the attack, because given contemporaneous records from German archives that are cited, I don't know if you want to say that Saul Friedlander is citing these uh, records and, you know, Taking them at face value or giving them credit or something, but in those records, uh, uh, German the, the German the German Navy was under orders from Hitler all throughout that period, up into including those uh, that first incident, not to uh, fire on American ships. You, you so I mean, do you think you keep doing this thing where you hide behind this guy? You hide behind I'm not hiding behind your, anything, Jonathan. I'm not hiding argument. behind anything. Just make your own arguments. This, my, 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 I'm making my own arguments. Okay, so you, I'm so, using evidence so to your, make arguments. So your, position, your position is that is that I wasn't there when the USS Greer incident happened. Okay, that's fine. But your but your but but your reading of history, your reading your your reliance on Croc, your reading of of I guess Freelander. I don't know what he had to say about it. Is that the Germans were in the so right you haven't read it? I mean, what that's that that no, I have not. I have that not makes read sense. Saul Freelander's. T- well, you, I, I, re- I would recommend it. Okay, it's very informative. But, I, but, but I'm just, I'm just asking. I'm saying that that you, so your position is that the Nazis were in the right on that on that. Particular no, point. Jonathan. No, my position has never been that the Nazis were in the right about anything. Okay, that is you an are, incredibly tendentious characterization you're of really, my really position. So really, you really, can really, really, make. Absurd claims like you made a few days ago that I'm blaming the Jews for the Holocaust because somehow I'm a Nazi sympathizer. In your in your rebuttal to my um, article, wait, you wait, said wait, wait, that wait, wait, I'm wait. not not no, no, engaging no, 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 in Nazi no, 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 sympathy. No, 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 I am not. So Jonathan, Michael, let me tell you. Michael, let me just Michael, tell you Michael, straight you up. No, Jonathan, this is my room. You called in. Let me just tell you straight up, Jonathan. I am not a Nazi. I don't. I do not sympathize with the Nazis. Okay. I I allege that Hitler was psychotic in his obsession with the Jews. Okay. So I am not a Nazi sympathizer. I don't do not sympathize with any tenet of Nazi ideology or anything that Hitler did. But you're making the claim, and yet you allege that, that on the basis of nothing except your own demented you, personal hatred toward me. Just answer the question, Mike. I'm answering God. it. You're what, not. What question? What question? You're saying that you're saying that in the USS Greer incident, the Correct. Germans were on the right and the Americans were on no, the right. No, that's not right. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the rendering of that incident presented by Croc is one that has ample substantiation and establishes what you had asked me. Just a few questions before what? you said, do I, you said, is my, do I, do I think that there was a state of war that existed between the U S and Germany prior to Pearl Harbor? Um, you asked me a question to that effect, right? Yes. I cited those three naval warfare incidents as indicating that warfare had been initiated by the U S against German sea craft. You then pivot from that to 
I therefore think Germany was in the right in a moral sense, which is no, 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 so no, no, far no, no, no. a feel for anything I've ever said or believe that it, it's totally the, coherent, to, except to, the only, it, it could only be coherent if you're trying to establish what you've accused me of on multiple occasions, which is I'm being trying, a sympathizer of the I'm Nazis, which to, I am not, I, Jonathan, whatever I'm you might trying, think in your head I'm, as a product of your, of your years-long obsession with me. I'm trying Man, I don't. I think the obsession goes the other way. I got to tell you, I have. Ne- I, I don't remember ever initiating any discussion of you at all. I don't really. I'm not that interested in you, Jonathan. You're the one who always you know, barrages me with these incredibly bizarre accusations. But you know, so you ahead. think if, you think you think that a state of war existed between the United States and, and and Nazi Germany prior to Hitler's declaration of war on December 11th? I think that the U- U.S. Per the documentary record that was contemporaneously remarked on at the time, uh, it is dem- has been demonstrated that the U.S., at the orders of Roosevelt, um, given Roosevelt's desire, according to Churchill, stemming from uh, August 1941, Churchill recorded that uh, Ch- Churchill reported to his war captain that Roosevelt said in August of 1941 that because he wanted to enter the war against Nazi Germany, that he would therefore uh, wage war without declaring it and attempt to provoke an incident. That's what Churchill, that's certainly what Churchill Roosevelt wanted. is saying. That's certainly, so, sorry? That's, certainly, that's certainly what Churchill Is wanted. that or is that not what Churchill recorded Roosevelt is saying? Uh, that, that does sound familiar because that's what Churchill What's wanted. The, uh, well, if because, it's, uh, because what, what, why, was, why, was, why, was, why did Churchill want to be at war with the Nazis? Hold on. Is that or is that not what Churchill recorded Roosevelt as saying in August of 1941? That sounds, yes, I, I think that was right. That is I what he, Churchill saying, recorded Roosevelt as saying, correct? That okay. is what Churchill and then, recorded to uh, his war cabinet. But my, but right. my question is why... There we go. I'm glad we agree on that point of history. So my question was, why was Churchill at war with the Nazis? <laughs> I mean, why was Churchill at war with the Nazis? I mean, do you want me to to, do you want me to make the trivial statement that uh, Britain declared war on Germany after the invasion of Poland in September 1939? And that was when that was when the war was officially declared between Great Britain and Germany. Right. Right. And why? Yeah. So it was it was in it was in response to Germany's invasion of Poland. Right. Yes. Okay. so. When you say that a state of war existed between the United States and Germany in 1941, who was responsible for that state of war? I would assign responsibility to both parties in various uh, in various degrees uh, for why there was a state of warfare between the United States and Germany. Uh, but in terms of the initiation, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me answer. But in terms of those, the initiation of those three incidents of naval warfare, the record shows, I don't know, you seem to dispute this or dispute it partially or whatever. Well, thing, the, the, thing the, is, Hold on, the three incidents, when, 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 when Roosevelt declared that America had been attacked by Nazi Germany after the second of those three incidents. And the second of those three incidents is essentially... For my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong with actual facts if you have them. That second incident is, was said by Kroc and is that re, was reinforced by others to have been uh, initiated in terms of 
on Roosevelt's orders, that second naval incident was carried out on Roosevelt's orders where the ship proactively attacked, the U.S. ship proactively attacked the German ship. Okay? Is that not correct? And then Roosevelt used that incident to declare that America had been attacked by Nazis and that he cited that as, uh, then he bolstered that claim by saying that he had got, uh, been provided with a map that showed that the Nazi Germany yeah, the had designs to invade yeah. the U.S. It turned out to be a doctored map by, uh, that he got from British intelligence. I mean, am I crazy here? Did not that, is that not established as the historical record? And then, and then, so then as a result of that incident, then Roosevelt did what? Repealed, I mean, he, he, he used it to bolster his advocacy for the repeal of provisions of the Neutrality Act. Yeah. But he didn't, right? declare, war on, he didn't declare war on Germany. Well, no, he didn't declare formal war on Germany. However, because according could, to Joseph P. Lash... So do you think... Do you th- is it a, hold, hold on, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan. Do you think the conclusion proffered by Joseph P. Lash, the Roosevelt historian... Uh, and also the conclusion proffered by Churchill in that August 1941 meeting that he then reported to his war cabinet, which you seem to agree occurred. Um, do you think the conclusion, do you, do you think what Churchill and Lash said, and they're not, of course, not the only ones, but when they said that Roosevelt's policy was to wage war on Germany without declaring it, do you think that's an unfounded statement as to what the policy was at the time? I think that, I think that that statement it's a little bit overstated. I mean, the, like, how would you they, how would you put it? Well, I mean, the thing is that like there wasn't a war between the United States and Germany at that time. Like, the United States was like there weren't battles. <laughs> the, the United States didn't invade Germany. But there were three instances of naval warfare when the U.S. is. It, it's generally thought that the U.S. initiated an attack on German ships. And 111, 111, 111 U.S. sailors were killed. Is that not warfare? Well, but the thing is that neither, neither party, neither Hitler nor Roosevelt, decided on the basis of those incidents to, to accelerate a shooting war, a hot war. Against hold on, them. hold on, Jonathan. Hold on, Jonathan. In the yeah. declaration of war that Hitler, I agree, of course, Hitler is the one who first issued a declaration of war on the United States after Pearl Harbor. After Pearl Harbor. Um, in that declaration of war, those three incidents are cited by Hitler, are they not? Yes, along with because uh, they they create they, they along they, with the international Jewish conspiracy. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah uh, that's also cited. Yeah. Um, so when you're saying that they were those incidents were not used as a basis to initiate the full declaration of, of mutual war, that's not true. But they, but they weren't immediately used. Well, because, no, not immediately. Not immediately. I mean, what Norman Thomas said. Hold on, hold on. Jonathan said that the reason why the reason why Hitler didn't want the Kriegsmarine to fire on American warships at that time was because he didn't want it to happen until October. And the reason he didn't want it to happen until October was because he thought that he would have already won his war, his war of choice, the war that he chose to launch against the Soviet Union by that time. So he didn't well, want to, well, right. didn't well, want right. to go to Hold war. On. He didn't but, want to but, go I mean, to war against the United States at that moment, and the United States didn't want to go to war against him. Hence, there was not a war between the United but the, States but, but the order, and him but the, until he declared war on the United States. Correct, correct. Book, America's, Hitler's American Gamble that you've cited, that's the whole point of the book. 
is that he didn't have Correct. to declare war. He chose to declare war. Well, of course. Uh, he chose to formally declare war. Um, but the, the, the order, I mean, because uh, up until that point, this is according to the reading, the chronology that's set forth in a number of these works, um, although Hitler was of the belief for months prior, at the very least, that full war between the U.S. and Germany was an inevitability. It was only upon the commission of the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th that Hitler was, be, uh, was of the belief that the war that he thought was inevitably going to escalate into a full-scale world war had th- th- then been escalated into a full-scale war, world war. So then he issues the declaration of war. But prior to that, there is no evidence that an order had been given for proactive strikes by um, German U-boats on American ships uh, at, at Hitler's direction. In fact, he had resisted many of those orders for much of 1941, whereas right. there is evidence... Because hold, there on, whereas, hold on, whereas there is evidence that Roosevelt had ordered U.S. ships to proactively attack German Seacraft. Is that a correct statement that Roosevelt had issued that order? I don't know. I, I mean, it's possible. But if let, let okay, well, take a look me, at the September eleventh, nineteen forty-one public address where Roosevelt announces that he's uh, ordering U.S. ships to quote shoot on sight any okay, German so ships they encounter. Let's, let's it's not me making that up. That's right, in the let's, speech. Let's, stipu- let's stipulate for the sake of argument that that's true. There's no, need, there's no stipulation needed, Jonathan. That's in the text of Roosevelt's okay, remarks. Saying, okay, go ahead. Okay, good. Like, you, can, you can make that argument. I'm not going to contest you on it. Fine. <laughs> it's not me making an argument. Do you want me to read the, t- the transcript to you? What is your problem? I'm stip- do you not, do you okay, not sorry. Me? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So what I'm saying is it, stipulating that, you're argue- that you're, what you're saying is true, then that means that the United States was the aggressor. In your view, correct? In, in, insofar as to those three incidents... It initiated warfare on German sea craft. So if, if you initiate, if, if, one, if one ship initiates an attack on another ship, which ship, so ship A initiates an attack on ship B. Which ship between A and B is the aggressor in that scenario? I mean, the, the, the scenario as you laid it out, the ship that initiated the attack is the aggressor. I think, okay. I think, and in I all think three the, of those incidents, the historical record shows the first, that the U.S. initiated the attacks. So Does that mean they were the aggressor? So the I mean, States was the aggressor. Well, so do you, given what you just said. Well, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm, st- I'm stipulating that if what you believe, if, if what you're saying is true, that the United States is the aggressor. As per so, those so three this, incidents, this, this, Jonathan. This, this, the, the thing, the thing that, the thing that really came, and I, I, I don't like. We could go on forever. The thing that really came out. Hold on, but Jonathan, hold on. I, 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 I'm sorry if I've interrupted or raised my voice. I don't intend to do that. I try to sort of restrain myself. Um, and even though I believe that you've attacked me personally on many occasions over the years, that doesn't preclude me from wanting to engage with you substantially. I, ho- I hope I'm trying to at least demonstrate that much. Um, I just want to point out one thing, okay? Yes. And this is per uh, your thread that got circulated as a rebuttal of me. Um, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you uh, try to criticize me on, on, on several points, but I'm going to focus on two of them here. Okay. Um, first of all, you know, in, in, this, in the thread where you said that my uh, 
article is a, quote, deeply dishonest piece of lying garbage that frequently veers into Nazi sympathizing agitprop. Like, yeah. I, I know I'm not supposed to react to that characterization of my article as any kind of personal attack. But nonetheless, um, you said that uh, I lied. That's your word, lied, as relating to my depiction of the public polling for, about U.S. Uh, entry into World War II, right? Because yeah. you said... You said that although I cited a poll that was in the archive of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, where Gallup asked in May of 1940, um, do uh, the, the following question, do you think the United States should declare war on Germany and send our army and navy abroad to fight? I cited the, that 93% in that May 1940 poll said no. Um, you said that this was an example of me committing a lie yeah. Um, because also in that archive of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, there are other questions uh, relating to different aspects of U.S. involvement in the war, such as, uh, you know, should the United States aid uh, Britain, uh, even if it heightens the risk of war, et cetera. Even um, at the risk of getting into the war. Now, what I said, what I said specifically in the article was that um, – Gallup apparently did not conduct any further polling, specifically asking the direct should we or should we not go to war question. Now, none of the other polling questions in that archive hosted by the United States Memorial Museum show a Gallup poll post May of 1940 and before December of 1941 in which that direct question was asked. So my statement was correct. You said it was a lie because then you then cited other examples of polls in that archive where variations of the question was asked. I was specific in that. I was talking about that particular formulation. But you know what? You actually prompted wait, me to wait, recognize wait, wait, that. Wait. I, hold on, hold on, Jonathan. Let me yeah, finish yeah. then I'll let you speak. Okay, okay, you prompted me to actually recognize that I did commit an error in that I wasn't strident enough in formulating that paragraph uh, as I should have because uh, there, were, there were, in fact, other Gallup polls that don't happen to be in that Holocaust Museum archive but are nonetheless findable in sources such as the United States Congressional Record of June of 1941 um, in which uh, Gallup apparently did ask that direct question um, and uh, reported that uh, as of May of 1941, which was a full year after the occupation by the Nazis of France, mm -hmm. that uh, 79% of Americans said uh, stay out to the question of, quote, if you were asked to vote on the question of the United States entering the war against Germany and Italy, how would you vote? To go into the war or to stay out of the war? 21% said go in, 79% said go out. That poll was published May 16th, 1941. Okay, right. so when you're saying I lied, that is false. I mean, that's an incredibly invidious characterization of what I was saying. There. So let me. So, so let's let's talk about that. Okay. Okay, so, and there's another so, point that so I want to make about Norman Thomas later, but I'll let you respond to this first. Okay. So in in the source that that you cited, the, the Holocaust Museum, Holocaust Memorial, the questions are stated. You know, which of these two things do you think are more important for the United States to try to do to keep out of war ourselves? or to help England win, even at the risk of getting into the war. This is uh, September 1940. So obviously France has now been conquered, right? And this, by the way, and I just, I'm, I'm footnoting this because this, this is sort of a, a constant theme of, of your writing and also the, the, the particular blog post that, that we're talking about here. The only actors whose actions you ever seem interested in talking about are the United States. 
You don't talk about. Well, that's not true. That's just the topic I'm covering. What Japan's doing. What's that? Well, I mean, that's the topic I'm covering. I mean, it was the the, the article well, is about I mean, U.S. Get, entry like, to the war. You talk, you, you talk about you talk about what U.S. public. Okay, but I mean, Jonathan, you said you Europe, you explain to me how explain to me how it was a lie when I said that the question of do you think the United States should declare war and send our army and navy abroad to fight only appeared in that archive once on May of 1940 and, and did not because it is appear a subsequent time. Purposefully obfuscating the I'm not pur- the I'm is, purposefully I'm obfuscating by supplying the link to the source? That's purposeful obfus- obfuscation? Yeah, well, you're, you're at that right. But I'm going to answer the question. Okay, but that wasn't a personal attack, right? You just said I'm not that bright. But I don't, nothing but I'm, you I'm, say I mean, against I mean, me is a personal attack. I mean, you're asking why you put in a link that disproves your argument. What well, it doesn't disprove it. It proves it. It proves it, it. man. What, it proves that that specific formulation did Michael? not appear after May of 1940 in that archive. Here's a, well, this is the thing, okay? So first of all, I have two ways of answering that. The first one is, who cares about the specific formulation? Well, that's because the one when, I was talking because about. When, because, when, because when Gallup asks people in the United States throughout 1940 and 1941, is the most important thing that we should do to stay out of the war, or should we, or should we support Lend-Lease? Should we support the British? Should we support the French, you know, for the moment that they're in the war? Should we support the Soviets? Americans continually, it's an increasing number. It's 52% say that they should help the Allies in September of 1940, 67% in March of 1941, 62% in July of 1941, goes up to 68% in November. In May of 1941, 79% say stay out of the war. Ah, yes. So. We all know, anybody who knows about polling knows that the way that you specifically formulate a question. Correct. That's why I was talking about that one specific formulation, which you said was a lie when I said it didn't appear after May of 1940 in that United States Holocaust Museum archive. It wasn't a lie, Jonathan. You could say that it's, you could say that it's, 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 it's inapt for me to focus on that formulation, but it's not a lie. It's not a lie. Before we move on to that. Do you set, do you, do you, will you stipulate, <laughs> will you agree that polling shows throughout 1940 and 1941 that there was actually broad-based and increasing support among the American people for Lend-Lease and supporting the Allies, even when the, when the pollsters specifically asked them, even if it heightens the risk of going to war ourselves? Uh, yeah, that, that, that is reflected in the polling, but that's okay. not, that, 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 but that's why Jonathan, I was talking so about here, no, that one specific formulation of the question. I'm getting to it. Here's what's interesting about the citation that you made from, from May of 1941, May, June, 1941. I think it's in the July, 1941 congressional record. That date matters because the, the Soviet, uh, uh, the Nazis invade as Hitler's personal decision. The Soviet Union breaking the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact on 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 uh, the twenty second of June, nineteen forty one. So that's why. No, no, the, the the poll the poll I'm talking about here was published May sixteenth. Right, it's before it's before he invades the Soviet Union. So what I'm saying is, what's interesting about that poll is that in that same congressional record, I went and I looked. In that same congressional record, it shows a majority of Americans, even at the same time that the pollster is asking them, should we. Go to war. Should we choose to go to war right now in, in May of 1941 against the Nazis and against uh, uh, and against the Italians? A majority of Americans support convoys. They, they, they support they support this thing that you're saying is an act of aggression against Germany 
that Hitler cites in his declaration of war against the United States on December 11th, 1941. Well, I mean, is that surprising? I, I don't find that particularly surprising. I mean, that seems perfectly consonant with everything that I've said because yes. when Lend-Lease was proposed by Roosevelt and debated by Congress, mm-hmm. it was justified as necessary by Roosevelt as a tool by which the U.S. could remain out of war. Right? Not as a, Roosevelt wasn't promoting Lend-Lease as a vehicle by which the U.S. could enter the war. But the pollsters right? that would facilitate that, right? U.S. entry into the war, it was promoted by Roosevelt as a means by which the U.S. could avoid entering the war. But the pollsters so covered that. The convoys, covered hold that. on, Jonathan, saying, hold on, hold on. you got to let yeah. me respond. So if convoys had been presented to the public as a means by which Lend-Lease was being implemented and Lend-Lease was widely understood based on the assurances of Roosevelt, administration officials, members of the media and others as a means by which the U.S. could avoid war, uh, does it surprise me that given sort of the latent sympathy uh, uh, for Britain over Germany that more and more Americans would support something like convoys? No, but that doesn't undercut the reason why I happen to focus on the polling questions that ask the question more definitively as to whether you would, on a yes or no binary basis, support entry into the war. Because but a lot of people would have thought that convoys would have been a means by which to avoid entering the war, which was, but of the, course, not true. But the pollsters cover that because they say, in Mar- they ask in March of 1941... Which of these two things do you think is more important for the United States to try to do? To keep out of war ourselves or to help England win? Okay, yeah. I grant, I grant that there's, there are no, nuances around how polling questions are asked. Of getting into the war. So how do you, interpret, how do you interpret the May 1941 result where 79% say stay out? You're trying to edit the quote in real time. Even at the risk of getting into the war. Right. So 67% so of Americans... We're willing to accept increased risk. We're willing to accept increased risk to supply provisions to Britain. Is, but, but can't you think of reasons why somebody would, why someone would say, let's keep supporting Britain, even if that draw, drags us into the war, but let's not just go out of our way and declare war against Nazi Germany. Do you think, do you, do you think the assurances given by Roosevelt and transmitted through the media and repeated in Congress, etc., that those convoys... Uh, whatever uh, precise effect they may have had on the risk that the U.S. could enter the war, do you think that the present the public presentation of those convoys as a means by which the U.S. could avoid entering the war did that have any influence on public opinion? I mean, was was Roosevelt considered a popular president? Was he not just reelected in 1940? Could his assurances yeah. not have any influence on how people perceive what he says is this signature policy initiative that the U.S. needs to undertake uh, as relating to the war that's underway? Well, we have this. We have the answer from these polls, which is that the, the pollster is asking, "Should we do this? Should we do this thing, even if it means that we're going to end up in a war?" And sixty-seven percent are saying, "No, no, no. Saying, yes. If it increases the risk, is that what it says? Remind yes, me with the precise the wording. Even at the risk. Okay. Even if it increases the risk the of entering the war, people were, were accept were willing to accept increased risk to supply Britain with arms. Well, by, right. by November of, of 1941, the question says, which of these two things do you, uh, do you think? Okay, okay so Jonathan, how do, you, how do you interpret, how do you explain or interpret the discrepancy 
between the polling uh, of the result uh, between I, questions like that one as to aid to Britain and then the more direct question that was asked, for example, in May of 1941 when 79% of Americans say they wish to, quote, stay out of the war. How do you interpret that discrepancy? I think, because I'm willing to, I'm willing to go out on limbs and actually like draw conclusions from the evidence that I'm marshalling and the, the arguments that I'm making, as opposed to just sort of acting like I'm just asking questions just so that, you know, people who think... Well, I'm not acting like I'm just asking questions just, or I'm not declining just, just to, to draw sure conclusions that, that I want to draw, but go that ahead. Germany was just trying to create a, a land bridge to the free city of Danzig um, will, will, will like my work. The reason well, why I, didn't I say think that. that is, is because I think that people prefer to think of themselves as being in defense in defensive positions where they are willing to go to war if they feel that they have no other choice but they don't want to be the aggressor that's a very typical that's a very very typical position for people to take okay and, 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 um, and, and, i mean and to me that, i think that's that, a plausible that, 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 that that's a, i mean i mean what you're saying there is what you're saying is there strikes me as plausible but the reason again why i focus on that more specific phrasing of a yes or no as to whether to enter the war or not is because it's less susceptible to sort of interpretation and it's just sort of like a more like a referendum entering the war versus not and by may of 1970 uh, 79% said no to that question in the Gallup survey, even though you said I lied. Well, I mean, in the, in like, like the last, the last, representation of the, the last, uh, of, of the, screen, the last of the screenshots on. that I posted is the question is phrased differently. Which of these two things, do, this is from November, 1941. So this is crucially in terms of the timeline before Pearl Harbor, before the attacks on Pearl right. Harbor, the Philippines, Guam, Wake Island. And after, after the instances of naval warfare, right. And after and after the after the the, the, uh, the Nazis have invaded the Soviet Union, but and after Guam, the Greer after the after the three naval warfare incidents, right? Yes, but I don't think those are nearly as important in the public imagination as the. Well, as they the were Pearl important Harbor enough to Roosevelt that he delivered he delivered Union. national addresses based on them to influence public opinion. Still, still, nonetheless, were uh, those but, Nazi? But I'm going mean, to read the question: Which of these two things do you think is more important that this country keep out of war or that Germany be defeated? 68% say Germany be defeated. 28% okay. say keep out of the war. 5% say no opinion. That's before Pearl Harbor. But after the three naval warfare incidents that were huge. I mean, Jonathan, those were enormous stories. And the president uh, bolstered the significance of those stories by declaring that they were acts of war upon the United States and that Nazi Germany uh, intended to invade the United States and conquer it. On the basis right. so, of those incidents. So, so, so again, so, so your, your position, just, I, I just, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to understand you here. Okay. Your position is that Franklin Roosevelt embarked on an aggressive and, uh, and provocative naval war against Germany. Unbidden. According to Winston Churchill. Yes. Uh, unbidden. And that. Well, I don't know what you mean by unbidden. He but... lied to the American people to sell it to them. And that this convinced the American people to support war against Germany, even before Hitler then on his own declared war, even though historians say it, it, the absolute consensus, 100 percent consensus view is that he absolutely did not have to. I agree that that's the absolute consensus view that he did not have to issue a formal declaration of war on December 11th. Um, I don't dispute that. Uh, I'll tell you what my position is in my own words. 
Um, and uh, I want to again get to one other point, and then we'll have to wrap up because we could probably go on forever. I hope I at least gave you a uh, maybe I might have interrupted too much, but I feel like I have given you a significant platform here to give your critiques of me. Uh, my position is that Lend-Lease, when it was in initially proposed by Roosevelt and implemented by Congress, it was denied strenuously that would be used as a vehicle by which the US, for the U.S. to enter the war. Um, it was denied that convoys would be embarked upon pursuant to the implementation of Lend-Lease. Uh, in fact, coincident with that debate around whether Lend-Lease should be enacted, Roosevelt had already initiated plans to convoy uh, U.S. to convoy U.S. armaments to belligerents in the war. Um, even as his own Secretary of War uh, of Navy, rather Frank Knox, had said that that very act would constitute an act of war. Um, uh, during that debate. The media was being told by the Roosevelt administration that no convoys would be underway, uh, no, no convoys would be used pursuant to Lend-Lease because it would be an act of war. Um, and then by uh, September, uh, pursuant to the implementation of Lend-Lease, warfare was initiated at the order of Roosevelt on German ships, thus commencing active warfare of the kind that was claimed would be avoided um, when Lend-Lease was first enacted and when there's contemporaneous records that despite the ambiguity around how a polling question is phrased, uh, as late as May, as we've established here, 79% of the public said that they wish to stay out of the war. That is my position. And so, um, on, and so on the basis of that... And hold on, hold on. Let me, let's, just, let's just move on from that, Jonathan, because we got to... No, 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 no. I want to follow your thought. Okay. On the basis, on the basis of that analysis... Do you thus conclude that the United States was right to go to war against Nazi Germany? Well, that's a normative assessment that I've expressly declined to make as a result of this entire discussion. You're saying that you're saying that Roosevelt uh, was deceptive. You're saying that Roosevelt. You're saying that that Roosevelt. Uh, Jonathan, uh, my whole point about my whole the whole that he that he can that he that he persuaded the American people. You're making normative assessments. Was the United States, on the basis of the analysis that you just laid out, was the United States right or wrong to go to war against Nazi Germany? The reason why I established all this chronology around Lend-Lease and around the initiation of the naval warfare, etc., was to make the following assertion, that the escalation of U.S. interventionist policy throughout 1941 was carried out in conjunction with what seems to be indisputably a campaign of concerted deception on the part of state officials as to what the U.S. policy was. And so when people now want to say 80 years later that the U.S. Right? entering... Hold on, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. When people want to say 80 years later that U.S. entry into World War II was an unambiguous unmitigated moral good and should be retroactively endorsed with no hesitation, one of the things that I say ought to challenge that presumption is that for this reason and others, but among those reasons, is that the entry to the war was conducted in concert with a deliberate campaign of state deception. And deliberate campaigns of state deception to involve a country into the war, into a war, 
um, are not things that I tend to issue unabashed moral so endorsements to. Is that a reasonable position? Think the United States was wrong to go to war against Mexico. No, my position is exactly what I said there, Jonathan, and I'm not going to fall into this trap of having to issue it statements does, according to like a binary a, like, position that like, you have imposed on me. A, wait, hold on. You're not a historian, okay? No one in the histor- no one in the, no one in the historiographical community is waiting for Michael Tracy to weigh in. On, okay, personal on, attack. On, on go on, go to, on. To, to, to the U.S. entry to the war in 1941. Personal attack. Wait, making, go ahead. No, you're you're not as I'm not a historian either. You're like so, the, how does that undermine me if, if 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 you and I have the same status vis-a-vis whether we're professional historians? Right. We're we're journalists and we're making arguments okay. in the in real time. So make your argument. Was the United States right or wrong? Jonathan, I made the argument. I made that argument. I wrote in the article. Was it right? I I wrote in the article. I wrote in the article that was the impetus for this discussion in which you replied to that I am avowedly not stating that the U.S. was wrong to enter the war or that the U.S. was right to enter the war. That's not my purpose in any of this. My purpose is to challenge the presupposition that U.S. entry into the war can be considered an unmitigated moral good that deserves our retroactive, reflexive endorsement. That's my position. Well, you're, if you you're, don't agree, if you don't endorse, accept either, that that's my position, endorse, okay. But that's what retroactively, it is. Hold on. You're either retroactively endorsing the U.S. entry into the war or you're not. And it sounds like you're not. It sounds like you kind of... Right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not issuing... My, my, the, the article concludes with, I decline to issue that endorsement. That's true. So then what are you doing, man? Like, so, so what are you saying? I, I'm saying exactly what I'm saying, that, that, that the, the demands, like the demands to issue that endorsement as some sort of absolute moral good are, are not sustainable. That's what I'm saying. I think we covered that, Jonathan. Let, let, let me just t- t- point, touch on one more issue that I do. And I, have to, I have to get to other people, okay? Sure. Um, in your thread, uh, one thing that you suggest is um, that... I, uh, for one thing, lie by omission in uh, citing Burton Wheeler as having been accused by the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, for uh, engaging in subversive activities and even treason uh, when he, Burton Wheeler, revealed the existence of the um, expeditionary convoy that Roosevelt had ordered in July of 1941 that had been concealed Mm -hmm. from Congress and the public. When Wheeler revealed that, he was uh, attacked as potentially engaging in treason or even endangering U.S. Uh, forces. Uh, you say I lied uh, because I did not mention, for example, that Wheeler was pictured on stage um, making a hand gesture that uh, you claim was a Nazi salute. Wheeler's biographer. No, hold on, hold on. Let me, stop, let me finish. You got to let me finish. Wheeler's biographer disputes that that was a Nazi salute. And in fact, this gets to the main point that I wanted to make. In that same photo that you posted at the far right, partially cropped out is uh, Norman Thomas. This was in the New York Books, New York Review of Books article that you linked to. On the far right of that photo is Norman Thomas making the same gesture. Um, and My to me, to, 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 hold on, hold on. To me, it seems. Uh, far-fetched that Norman Thomas would have made a Nazi salute to indicate his affinity with Nazi Germany, given his status as the leading Socialist Party figure in the country and his whole multitude of other statements that he had made over the course of his entire life denouncing fascism and Nazi Germany. Uh, But the thing I wanted to really most 
respond to hold on the thing i wanted to want to most respond to was your suggestion that i had mischaracterized the view of uh norman thomas you no, said, no, no, wait, you, wait, hold wait, on, hold no, on, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're just galloping. No, no, no. Back, back, okay. back, back. Okay, back, go back, ahead. Back go up, ahead. You up. can respond, yeah. Back up. Bert, what I was saying about Burton Wheeler, okay, that's a bad picture of Burton Wheeler, but what I was saying about Burton Wheeler was that he was a Nazi sympathizer. He used his congressional franking privileges to send out Nazi propaganda. He was an anti-Semite who blamed the Jews for losing his primary in 1946. He, 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 he was out in force in 1940 denouncing Jewish bankers. Okay. That as, may be, as, 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 Jonathan, that may, all be, that, that, that may all well be true. Well, I'm not going to dispute the particulars of all that. That's None of that, point. however, undermines so the chronology of what I put as, as what I laid out as to what happened when Wheeler revealed the existence of a military operation that had been concealed from Congress and the public when he was accused of subversion and treason on that basis for revealing the existence of the military operation. Hold on, hold on. And of course, hey man, do you think that using your your congressional franking purposes, uh, privileges to send out Nazi propaganda? in the middle of, of, of what is already World War II in the rest of the world could be considered subversive activities against the United States? Uh, it could be. You know, I'm, I'm not familiar with the specifics of that actual claim. I saw the link. I saw the excerpt of the book you posted. I, I would love to see, and I, genuinely, I would love to see the primary source material that created that, uh, that, that, that uh, caused those authors to make that statement. I'm not denying that it happened. I'm saying I would love to, I'm simply saying I would love to see the primary source materials. I'm not denying either that, Wheeler said, uh, could have said things that were indicative of some sort of prejudice toward Jews. That would not surprise me either. Uh, but none of that undermines uh, the chronology or makes a lie the way in which I presented Wheeler. Wheeler, hold on. The way in which I presented Wheeler being uh, Wheeler's revelation of that Iceland, Icelandic military operation. Hold on, hold on. Your implication is that he was speaking truth to power against. No, no, no. My implication. No, no. That's your. That's your inference. My implication is simply what is written in the text. And the text shows that that's what happened chronologically when when Burton Wheeler revealed the existence. Uh, so let's say Burton Wheeler was a full fledged, unmitigated, vicious Nazi who hated well, Jews to the to his very the very very fiber of his being. Yeah. Let's say that was the that, that described him accurately in July of sure. 1941. If none if someone who's as morally disreputable as that, nonetheless reveals the existence of a military operation that had been concealed. Does that somehow change the effects of the revelation of the military sealed? No, it doesn't. Does a Nazi sympathizer revealing the, 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 the plans for a military operation against the Nazis change the valence in which we understand the military operation against the Nazis? Does it change the fact that, that the operation had been concealed from Congress and the public until he revealed it? I think it changes things a lot. <laughs> Does it change the fact that the operation had been concealed from the public and from the Congress until he revealed it? Well, this is the thing. This is the thing is that, like, you know, some of us do go through life making normative statements like Nazis are bad. And then we live with those. And then okay. we live with those. I agree with you, we... Jonathan. Nazis are bad. I've cool. said that many times. Okay, cool. My article includes statements. My honor, my, my, <laughs> I mean, I, I, this idea that I'm, 
concealing my secret sympathy for Nazis or I don't believe Nazis are bad and that's the driver of my analysis is just ludicrous. I think that, um, you, know, I think that you know that you can appeal to your audience, some of whom I'm sure are here listening right now, by dancing around these questions. and doing I'm not dancing around the questions. questions. I've answered your questions. No, that's what I'm saying. Answering the question of was the United States not every question, not every question that not not every question that's posed to me, Jonathan, mm -hmm. has to be unreserved. The all premises embedded in uh, in which have to be unreservedly accepted. For example, if I ask you, "Have you stopped beating your wife?" You're not dodging the question or dancing around the question if you point out that the premise of the question is fallacious. It's okay. A easy question to answer. I don't beat my wife. Thank you for asking. It's have you, the, the question is, have you stopped beating your wife? And you, if you're saying yes or no. I don't beat my wife. So is the, okay. The, the, you're, you're getting it wrong. Okay, here's the, the question. Way, yes no, or no, man, Jonathan, way, yes or no. Hold on, hold on, Jonathan. Yes or no, have no, you stopped no, beating no, your wife? Dude, dude. Yes or no, way, have you stopped beating your wife? No, no, that, you're getting the fallacy wrong. The way you're supposed to ask is, when did you stop beating your wife? When is the important word there? Okay. It can highlight it highlights fallacies that's in other the, regards, even when it's different. The <laughs> okay, let's move. Let, let, let's move on to one final point because we've been going on forever. I just want to point out yeah. Yeah. that you uh, say that I must have been egregiously misrepresenting Norman Thomas because I ignored that. Uh, in, short order, changes, I, uh, in short I order, Thomas would flat out support the U.S. going to war against the Nazis. <clears throat> yeah. Um, or entering World War II. Um, I didn't misrepresent that. I represented perfectly accurately the position espoused by Norman Thomas in January of 1941 when he was brought to testify before the uh, House Committee on Foreign Affairs in strident opposition to the enactment of Lend-Lease. Uh, because strident. it was absolutely strident. I don't agree with that. that, that it was that absolutely strident. It was, it was absolutely strident because he because what he said was what he said at that time, and he said this a lot was that he at that point he supported arming Britain. He supported doing. He said he, he wouldn't. Supported, he said he, he said supported, he wouldn't. He said he, Thomas, he said he wouldn't. Norman no, no, no. Thomas in, er, Norman Thomas in early 1941 supported doing with Britain what the United States is doing with the Ukrainians right now. Here's Norman, what. Here's what. Norman hold on. No, no, that's not true. Not true at all. Not true it at is. all. The U.S. enacted lend lease. In April of this year, he which like, which which Norman like Thomas testified in opposition to in 1941, felt. Norman Thomas. Here's what Norman Thomas said. Here's what Norman Tom, Thomas said as to why he opposed. Okay, whether you want to say it's strident or not, did he oppose the enactment of Lend-Lease? He didn't like the. He didn't. Did like he oppose it? He didn't like the. He did not like Lend-Lease. Did he, he oppose like Roosevelt's Lend-Lease proposal? He opposed it. Okay, good. And here's one of, one of the reasons he, why he said he opposed you, you're, you're it. Quote, that, it that, that it would, man. quote, put us in war you're gradually. You got, you're, you're Hold on. This is, no, 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 no. This is why. This is why. <laughs> you're doing no. the Tucker thing. I'm not doing any. Jonathan, you've you had plenty of time here. You, this is not a four-minute table news segment. He, uh, Thomas said that one reason why he opposed Roosevelt's Lend-Lease proposal was that, quote, it would put us in war gradually, knowing that we would refuse to go into it all at once. He thought that Lend-Lease was being used as a vehicle by which the U.S. would be gradually entered into the war because Roosevelt knew that the U.S. public would not support 
a full-fledged declaration of war, and therefore involvement of the U.S. in the war had to be carried out on a more gradual basis. And Norman and, Thomas was and, Norman and, Thomas. And Thomas and Thomas said, "Hold on, I'll, let me finish, and then you can finish, and then we're gonna then we're gonna wrap this up because we've gone on for a very long time." Um, Thomas also said, "It is a bill to authorize undeclared war in the name of peace." And Thomas also said that uh, one of the effects of the enactment of Lend-Lease could be that um, it seems to be forgotten that our acts of war against Hitler, which Thomas said could come about as a result of the enactment of Lend-Lease, may well be interpreted by Japan under her treaty with the Axis as justifying her entry into the war. And Norman Thomas later went on to say that we shall have total war on two oceans and five continents. Now, you can say that's not strident opposition. Norman? To me, it seems rather strident, and, it's, and, and I didn't mischaracterize Thomas's position. Well, as, so late as, December I'll, I'll 6th, as late I'll as December 6th, I'm, I'm almost done. As late as December 6th of 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor, Norman Thomas sent a letter to the New York Times reiterating his opposition to U.S. entry into the war. The following day, Pearl Harbor happens. Thomas withdraws the letter, and he, along with others who had opposed U.S. entry, such as Burton Wheeler, who you say was a Nazi sympathizer, which may or may not be true, uh, they then uh, reluctantly support the U.S. war effort at that point. That is perfectly, that is what I characterized uh, Thomas's position to so have been, here, and there you have it. Here's what so I'll there's no lie me. there either. Here's what I'll say about Norman Thomas, and then we'll, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go. I'll go back to my family, and you'll go back to New Jersey. So, um, well, I'm, I've been in New Jersey this whole time, but I know you're interested in the state I'm in. So, so um, uh, the so I I, I I read a bit about Norman Thomas while I was researching my book on Smedley Butler, uh, Gangsters of Capitalism. Smedley Butler was a uh, a friend of and a supporter of Norman Thomas. He he, he cast his last presidential vote. Uh, it was an anti-war vote in 1936 for Norman Thomas against Franklin Roosevelt, and Norman Thomas was in the position, in, in the process of a long and complicated uh, uh, come to Jesus moment with the eventual war against Nazi Germany. So by the time that he was uh, making those statements in early 1941 about Lend-Lease, he had already backtracked on his anti-war position. He had, he had complicated his anti-war position by saying that he was in favor of arms being provided to the British to, to uh, 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 fend off the Nazi attack, the Nazi invasion. And I just want to read this last quote from Norman Thomas, and then we will go as, as, as we listen to the dulcet tones of New Jersey in the background. No, Norman Thomas wrote in his memoir, Socialist Faith, this was his ultimate position on the war. He said, practically, there were no alternatives but abject surrender on a global scale to fascism, in which there would have been no lasting peace or military action to end brutal aggressions marked crime. Jonathan, let me ask for clarification. No, no alternatives at what America point? When the U.S. had already formally entered after Pearl Harbor or before that? In a war-mad world. I, the hater of war, chose as between circles of hell. I chose critical but active support of the war to the point Wait, after Pearl Harbor might be after possible. Pearl Harbor and for that end I after Pearl Harbor not and outside yes. the Socialist Party after Pearl Harbor after Japan attacked the United States right after Hitler on his own accord declared war on the United States and this is I think what that was yes that was Norman Thomas's position after the US had formally entered the war at, people are asking of you to look back through history at the things that people like Norman Thomas, that Smedley Butler, that anti-fascists 
have and anti-war people, and I consider myself both anti-war and an anti-fascist, have had to ask themselves over the years. The question is, is there an alternative but abject surrender on a global scale to fascism? Is there an alternative? Is there an alternative? Is there peace possible under fascism? Is there peace possible under an authoritarian government? Is there peace possible in a world where countries can just invade their neighbors and absorb them? And that's a question that Norman Thomas asked himself. He asked himself that from an anti-imperialist point of view, which I share. And it's a question that I think that that is what charitably, that is what people are trying to guide you toward. They're trying to get you to ask these hard questions of yourself and not just retreat to these 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 facile declarations that the United States is hypocritical, that liberal Democrats are hypocritical. That I never said that. All of that is true. But we're asking you to go past Well, I never made those actually, facile declarations. Actually, though. God forbid, make a normative judgment for once in your life. I, I made a normative judgment. The normative judgment I made is written in plain, crystal clear English in the text of the article I that disagree, you that you responded to, that you responded, that you responded to, and even though you're saying that you don't personally attack me, that you called a dishon- deeply dishonest, lying piece of garbage that frequently yeah, veers into Nazi sympathizing yeah, yeah. prop. That's all what of that's true. All of that. Okay. Is well, really you know what? If I'm if I if all I'm if all I'm doing is peddling Nazi sympathizing agitprop, Jonathan, I'm not sure why. I don't know how long we went here, but uh, it seems like it could have been over an hour. That would be an odd thing for me to voluntarily do if all I was doing was spreading agitprop to show my sympathy for Nazis. I don't think I I I don't think I think. Okay, I, I and you know I don't think that your characterization of Norman Thomas's trajectory is quite accurate, and it's not per, sur, certainly not consistent with my depiction of it. But we should move on, and thank you, Jonathan. All right, goodbye. All right, <laughs> all right, uh, Andrew, you're up, and uh, I don't know. I need a. Uh, I'm good. Go ahead, Andrew. You need a cocktail, man. That was a fucking uh, marathon. <laughs> yeah. I, I had time to uh, to make a thermos of tea and eat two, uh, and don't make too much fun of me, but two tortillas with peanut butter on them. Uh, uh, you know what? I'm jealous. <laughs> I also was doing some work, but I, I did write down a couple of notes about things that I wanted to bring up. Um, I have not read your article, but I will. Uh, but I still think that there's some things that we could talk about regarding World War II. But first, I would just... Uh, make a statement about this I mean I, I feel like Jonathan's uh, fixation on on like definition of a word rather than like material reality is just not productive so just to use a couple of modern examples would you consider that the US is at war with Iran when they when they drone striked and murdered Qasem Soleimani even though there was no congressional declaration of war against Iran, and then the other would be when the U.S. is well. There's been no congressional declaration of war since 1941. So that you know, if yeah. that's the basis on well, which we understand that the U.S. For is at Korea? war, then it hasn't been. There's been no war since then. Yeah, I, I think that illustrates the the just nonsensical, um, completely unproductive fixation on who declared war first. Um, you know, it, it clearly doesn't play a role in most uh, 
conflicts that anyone with eyeballs and a brain would consider warfare. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are, there uh, are certain with, relevancies. With to the United States. I mean, given the gravity of those actual formal declarations, there are certain relevancies you can point to about the declarations themselves in, in 1941. Yeah. I'm not discounting that. But you're right in, in that, you know, if our barometer for understanding whether a state of warfare is underway is simply whether a formal act uh, has been passed declaring war, then yeah, there's or, been no like war the... the U.S. has been in since 1941. Or forty-five. Yeah. What about Korea? Didn't didn't they actually officially declare war on Korea? And all we ever no. Got was there was no congressional. So like technically, there was no, we're still at war. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, there was no there was no formal congressional declaration of war on Korea. Yeah. In other words, well, anyways, Congress did it, not it's, exercise its war making power uh, in the form of issuing a formal declaration as it did in World War II in Korea. Yeah, I mean, they abdicate their power with all these authorizations for military force, but that's actually not necessarily the main uh, thrust of my my thoughts about all this. There's there's more, I think, important things, but I just thought that that was a quick point to illustrate what a waste of time it is to to try and you know like fry your brain with the microwave of Jonathan's fixation on definitionally was the United States the the first person to declare war. It doesn't matter. Like they were, they were carrying out warlike aggressions, acts of war. Um, but I think, like my my overall thought is that viewing the the historical causes and impacts of various participants' involvement in wars as a binary good and bad is just completely unproductive for the purposes of preventing warfare in the present and future. I mean, that's typically the lens that I take with understanding the causes of war is like, how do we prevent this type of uh, situation from happening again? Uh, and so like, I think it's really interesting that you see everybody immediately pick a moral posture with regards to World War II, which is very easy to do. Although people get a little muddled when they decide when they decide to weigh in on the Soviet involvement. But that, that, that being left aside, no, almost nobody makes the same moral judgments about World War I when there were every bit as as brutal genocidal practices being carried out by all of the various belligerents in World War One, I. I mean, in this time frame, you have the um, you know the the Young Turks in this roughly the same time period. You have the Young Turks genocide against Armenians. You have um, unspeakable genocide in the Belgian Congo. You have the the French genocidal actions, you know, going strong in Algeria. Um, and basically, World War One and World War Two are, I think, most effectively viewed as, um, you know, they are an inter-imperial struggle to redraw colonial boundaries of the various monarchies' territorial holdings. I also think, like, various governments, not the peop- not the general populace, their decisions to enter the- both of these wars and on which side they entered were based primarily upon geopolitical maneuvers for territory and resources, and they they subsequently used moralistic judgments um, in propaganda campaigns with the general populace to drive up support for enlistment and, and, you know, placate acceptance of conscription. That doesn't mean that there aren't moral outcomes. Like it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that defeating Nazis is not a, is not objectively a moral good. It is. uh, But it's just not really, it's just not really useful at all. And then, to get into like American culpability for uh, for the Holocaust or for you know the the war in general, 
I think that if you have not only the Nazis, I mean, and this is well documented, that the Nazis based a lot of their ethnic policies and later their, their genocidal and ethnic cleansing campaigns on the American Indian Wars and on the Jim Crow South. Um, and, then, and then they were also receiving financial support from people like Prescott Bush, and they received you know, large manufacturing support for the industrial base of their, of their ground military equipment from Ford Motor Company. And Henry Ford received you know, one of the highest awards from uh, German officials. And none of this was prevented by U.S. Um, sanctions on its own citizens' business activities. This was, this was happening essentially in the open. Um, so I, I think that when you go into these type of um, situations where you can't really say, like you can say definitively it's good the Nazis lost World War II. Easy, yes, answer. But you can't definitively say who is the, who is the worst moral evil when you have at the same time, you know, the, the British struggling to hold and the French struggling to hold on to their colonies in Africa and other parts of the world and slaughtering people for doing so or conscripting them to fight in World War II um, as a huge portion of their army. I mean, the French Foreign Legion is a great example. And, like, getting into these um, more difficult gray—I mean, they are kind of gray areas if your goal is is the simplistic argument of who's good and who's bad, the end, right. 100%. I mean— that doesn't do anything to prevent war. That doesn't do anything to prevent colonial subjugation, et cetera. So I'll shut up for a second and just what are your Yeah, yeah. Thoughts? No, Andrew, I mean, I, I, uh, I totally agree that this sort of unremitting uh, penchant for moral absolutism or to assign moral absolutism to outcomes, which to me and to others, including you, I guess, don't seem conducive to that sort of black and white moral absolutism. I agree that that is a huge impediment to uh, analyzing uh, as impartially as one can even contemporary issues around, uh, for example, Ukraine, where if one would like to understand why it is that the war appears to have reached a new escalatory phase, where, you know, in the past week, of course, Putin is threatening uh, a nuclear reprisal and, you know, undertaking this apparent uh, plan to annex several Ukraine provinces. Um, if one wants to understand the sequence of events which led to that, to this current phase of uh, the war, then you would have to set aside these binary moral judgments about whether certain actions are 100% unreservedly good and certain actions are 100% preservedly bad, or else you're going to obscure to yourself uh, the reality of how these escalatory uh, outcomes come about. Um, and yeah, we got a similar, uh, similar mindset can be applied to uh, World War II, I would think, um, in that, you know, because people think that w when Japan launched a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, that was bad. And of course, yeah, it was bad. It, it was a bad outcome in that it resulted in significant deaths. Um, but that doesn't mean it wasn't preceded by events which might have had an effect in precipitating it or giving rise to it. And acknowledging those precipitating events which may have given rise to Pearl Harbor is not to absolve the perpetrators of Pearl Harbor of moral responsibility for what they did. Um, it's, in fact, to paint a clearer picture of what causes eventuated in that immoral or uh, moral attack. Uh, 
immoral attack rather. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, uh, but if you're unable to separate your kind of grandiose moral judgments from this analysis, I can see why your um, analysis might be uh, a bit uh, muddled. So I've attempted in my own small way to kind of, you know, pierce through that. Yeah, I mean, if you're if 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 the whole point of somebody like Jonathan making these Twitter threads or articles is to say, uh, look how good my moral compass is, look how good our guys are, our side. It doesn't leave a lot of room to to look at mistakes that actually did. Well, I don't even think that's his purpose. Sorry, the rise to, of the Nazis. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Oh, I, I know it's more personally purpose. directed. I mean, his purpose, his purpose. Yeah, right. It's 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 to show that I'm a Nazi. I mean, that was clear. Yeah. Yeah. That was clear from his statements here, and it was clear. I mean, I'd never heard of this guy before, but it was also clear from checking out this Twitter thread that's been going around just now while I was listening. I, I don't need to. I don't need to um, elaborate too much more on that. I think everybody pretty much understands what just happened. But um, yeah. all right, I was well, going to also get at the fact. Got, yeah. Okay. Quickly. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. Real quickly. There's there's um, a couple other things, and I'll just really quickly blast them out there and then hang up. But. The, the fact that the British and the U.S. rejected attempts by the Soviets to preemptively, you know, crush the Nazis before the invasion of Poland, they even gave offers of security guarantees to the Polish who refused them uh, because of ideological struggles. It was very clear from Hitler's writings before he took power and after he took power, him and other Nazi officials were very clear about wanting to expunge all of the Slavs and destroy communism and destroy the Soviet Union. And the West essentially said, well, that might not be so bad. Let's see how this plays out. And then eventually decided, okay, the, the Soviets are going to win. Um, maybe we can help them and have a bigger slice of the pie in treaty negotiations. That was also seems to me a principal uh, influence on why the U.S. focused on the sort of uh, – the Pacific theater really heavily to try and preempt the Soviet involvement so that the Soviets would not have any uh, part in the negotiations for peace deals after the, um, the Pacific theater fighting had concluded. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it's just like, there's, there's so many more um, really cynical geopolitical maneuvers that happen in this period for resources, not for any type of moral benefit. People missed knowingly missed opportunities to fight the Nazis before they had conquered more of continental Europe and gone on to launch Operation Barbarossa because they thought, well, we don't really like these Soviets that much either. It wasn't, it wasn't even 20 years before Operation Barbarossa that the, these same nations who then were allied with the Soviets in World War II launched the White Army, you know, supplied troops to attack this same nation. So they clearly had geopolitical ambitions they clearly wanted control of Asia for force projection without the Soviets. And if 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 I were to agree, you know, I, there would have to be different conditions for me to agree that the U.S. was doing this because we're the good guys. And those conditions would have to include, you know, arming the the Chinese and the Vietnamese to fight the Japanese and then leaving the fuck alone after the war instead of trying to keep hold of their country for capitalist expansion. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um well, thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, definitely a useful uh, addendum. And uh, let's go to uh, Ron. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, right, I'm not going to take long because uh, I just have uh, a question. Um, now, I, I think that the point of your article is to raise questions about the uh, 
moral value of America's engagement in World War II. Now, no one denies that war is a very bad thing, uh, including those who believe it's justified. Uh, war is something that people engage in to prevent something that they believe would be worse. And, and that's true, even if their perception is distorted. So it's never about 100% good or bad, it's about which is worse. Now, for those that win, that worst scenario hopefully doesn't happen. So my question is, how can you judge the morality of a war in retrospect without considering counterfactuals? But the factuals are always bad. And the most important question is whether the counterfactuals would have been worse. Well, what I've endeavored to do is raise questions about something which is related to what you just suggested there, but not quite the way I would put it and not quite the way I did put it in the article. What I'm raising questions about are these incredibly morally absolute invocations of World War II as this binary good versus evil conflict in the sense that it was unreservedly, unmitigatedly, unmitigatedly good for the U.S. to have entered the conflict. And therefore, that action, the U.S. entry into the war, deserves today to be pronounced upon with um, an unlimited uh, ascription of of goodness and then used in contemporary analogies um, to justify interventionist U.S. policy when the moral parameters are understood to be comparable to World War II. So many people today think that the moral parameters of the war in Ukraine are equivalent or enough analogous to World War II that they uh, necessitate the kind of interventionist policy action that they claim was necessitated by uh, World War II. So that was my, and and, uh, challenging that popular sort of rendering of the issues at hand was more my, uh, was more my objective. And so therefore I don't, I, I intentionally wanted to not draw myself into counterfactual questions um, because I don't think those can be as factually and empirically evaluated because they necessarily are uh, reliant on speculation and facts that are unknowable. Or in other words, every fact which is involved in my assessment of this matter is a knowable fact, whereas unknowable facts would necessarily be required to focus on in the event of engagement with these more these counterfactual uh, matters that people want to raise in response to what I've raised. But, but that's true by definition, because if you win, then then what you wanted to prevent doesn't happen. So how can I, I mean? When people say that entering the war was good or unreservedly good, they don't mean that the war didn't cause any harm. They mean that it was unreservedly better than the alternative of not entering the war. Um, they may mean that, or they may just be assigning ultimate moral virtue to the decision to enter the war. Ultimate um, moral superiority, not ultimate virtue. They mean that it is ultimately better than the alternative, not, you know, the manifestation of, you know, angelic virtue. Well, I would, I mean, I would, I guess what I would reject then is that the virtue that they're trying to assign can be reasonably on the basis of that 
relativistic determination because the relativistic determination would have to be predicated on a counterfactual projection as to what would happen if the U.S. had not entered the war. So but, but I think I think hold on hold on I think it's I think it's reasonable I think it's you know uh, logically defensible for someone to issue a retroactive endorsement of World War II on the basis of the actual facts at hand on the basis of knowable facts as to what led up to it what came after it and what was produced ultimately from it if they want to issue an unmitigated moral endorsement on those grounds they can make that argument it would be logically consistent or logically tenable i'm saying i i think that it's not tenable and you can dispute this or reject say that i'm wrong in saying this my uh the, the argument that i've come to as a result of reasoning this out is that arguments that ascribe moral virtue or don't on the basis of unknowable facts that are necessarily uh, required to be speculated about as a result of these relativistic arguments or counterfactual arguments, those cannot form the moral judgment. Um, that's, what I'm, that, that's what I'm suggesting. They must. I mean, nobody, why would no, anyone... I, think, I, I don't believe they must. I think they must why not. Would anyone, why would anyone engage in war ever? Nobody thinks war is good. They, well, because people in 1941 who, waged, who decided to declare war waged it on the grounds that they thought it would produce a superior outcome, uh, that, 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 a, that a superior outcome would be produced as a result of them choosing to wage the war. That's not the position we're in today. The position we're in today is that we have the full facts, the full body of knowable facts that can form whether our retroactive judgment is owed to uh, endorse with unambiguity the war. So notice, I'm not, notice, um, Ron, I'm not denouncing as immoral people who in 1941 and who were in the midst of all those contingencies after Pearl Harbor, for instance, I'm not denouncing them as immoral for then supporting the war. What I'm saying is something different. What I'm saying relates to today. And it re- relates to the untenability of the ascription of this uh, unblemished, unmitigated moral value to U.S. entry into the war. Um, and I don't accept that that case can be reasonably made on the basis of counterfactuals, which don't inform anything I've said. Um, and if they do inform what people believe about World War II, then you know I, I, I'm simply I, I contest the utility of the moral utility of the counterfactuals that they're. Uh, su- suggesting are so vital to uh, coming up with a you know a defensible understanding of this. So, if you reject the use of counterfactuals in, in moral judgment, do you think that any war can ever be justified? I don't reject all counterfactuals in moral judgment. I think if today, right, um, if today one must make a decision about what is moral, what is just. Um, so, example, for example, one must decide if going to war is just or going to not go, not going to war is more just then in order to come up with a assessment of that uh, in order to assess that question one must engage in counterfactuals because the effects of the war are not the, the effects of the prospective war are not known to us um, so yeah no i think that that judgment would necessarily have to be By predicated definition. on our best assessment of counterfactual scenarios but for, yes. for retro in, but in terms of retroactivity Counterfactual scenarios are not uh, 
necessary to form those conclusions. In fact, I, I think they they detract from a rational rendering of the well, actual facts rather than the counterfactual facts in terms of what evidence ought to be taken into account to, to form our moral judgments. That's my, that's but, my view. Well, the fact is that the Nazis were defeated. What is uncertain is how bad would things have been if they hadn't. I agree. But if we can't engage in counterfactuals, we can't say how bad things would be. So we, we, by definition, cannot judge the morality of whether it was good or bad. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I contest that. Um, I don't think counterfactuals are necessary for the formation of those uh, judgments, and I, and I and would uh, r- rather argue that they deflect from a rational construction of arguments to that effect. But anyway, you know, I, th- I uh, appreciate you pressing me on that, Ron, and I right. appreciate you making me clarify the logic. Um, it's helpful even for my own purposes. Uh, let's go to Roy. Roy, if you're there, please unmute. Hey, Mike, yeah. can you hear me? Yes. Yes. So um, I was reading your article. Um, the last sentence, basically, you say, um, yet we're still expected to give a rousing full-throated retroactive endorsement and declare unreservedly that yes, of course we support the U.S. having entered World War II. Well, I decline to give that endorsement. Correct. So is this, so you're saying that based on everything we know, based on all the documents and, you know, whatever, whatever historians have, have looked at and decided was, was happening during that period, that you don't think that this was you, you should you wouldn't say you would have reservations about U.S. policy leading up to the war. Like you would have reservations on land wars, for example. I would uh, have reservations about this supposed imperative that issuing the kind of retroactive, morally absolute endorsement that I referenced there in that sentence is um, incumbent upon us or is incumbent upon all right-minded citizens, given a huge body of facts and, and argumentation that I've, I've laid out. Um, so again, I, wanna, I should maybe uh, reemphasize that what I'm not doing is uh, reproaching morally people who, for example, in, uh, after Pearl Harbor, uh, believed that it was necessary for the U.S. to enter the war. Um, that's why I specified it's a retroactive endorsement, right? It's not... I'm not saying that contemporaneously those who had that judgment on December 7th of 1941 deserve our uh, reproach 80 years later. Uh, What I'm saying specifically has to do with whether it is warranted to proclaim as gets proclaimed constantly in a whole variety of different contexts where people want to raise this analogy – I'm doubting or expressing reservations about the tenability – of the expectation that we're all to issue this unambiguous, unqualified moral endorsement of U.S. entry into World War II. Um, And that has to do not just with the formal entry, which of course happened on December 8th of 1941, but the sequence of events which preceded it, which as you mentioned included uh, Lend-Lease, which was presented to the public, uh, deceptively as a means by which the U.S. could avoid entering the war because that was what the lion's share, or at least that's arguably what the lion's share of public opinion was geared towards, staying out of the war. 
Um, and so that program was sold to the public as a means by which the U.S. could avoid entering the war. And it turns out that, as many skeptics warned at the time, it was in fact used as a vehicle by which the U.S. would enter the war, um, including, you know, which culminated arguably in uh, September, the following September in 1941, when, as pursuant to the implementation of Lend-Lease, uh, warfare against Germany was initiated on the orders of Roosevelt, and uh, the U.S. was uh, pr- initiated attacks on German seacraft, and then the nature of those incidents was falsely presented to the public uh, by the uh, by government officials, including Roosevelt himself, to escalate the war involvement even further. And so that should seem to me to disprove this idea that uh, Lend-Lease was was presented on. Uh, grounds that were not deceptive. Um, so, you know, but that's of course just one prong of the argument I'm making. So, is your is your criticism just how it was presented, or of this of this escalation? Because it definitely was an escalation. Well, yeah, I mean, but, but my, I'm, with my, my, I'm, with, I'm with you 100 percent there. Yeah, but yeah. Like, well, my yeah. Are you saying that it was irresponsible of the United States to to do that, or are you making a moral judgment about that? Uh, uh, policy well, my, my, how the policy was presented. My, my point is that the kind of unreserved, unambiguous moral judgments that people seem to just presumptively demand when talking about U.S. entry into World War II, in lay of that expectation, um, what I'm saying is that elaborate campaigns of systematic state deception, which I've characterized the depiction of Lend-Lease as, you know, in conjunction with other uh, aspects of how the U.S. war posture was being publicly presented at the time. To me, systematic campaigns of deception to facilitate entry into a war that public opinion opposes, uh, by and large, or can be said arguably to have opposed, um, that phenomenon, that systematic state deception phenomenon, to me, is not conducive for uh, among other reasons, but that's one of the reasons why, uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, the expectation that we're all supposed to give these unreserved, unambiguous moral endorsements is untenable. Because to me, a uh, systematic campaign of state deception to progressively evolve a country into a war which, in, in, in contravention of the lion's share of public opinion, um, that's not something that I would issue uh, unambiguous ringing morally absolute endorsement to would you um i mean i think you have to look at like that the the situation in 1941 um the nazis were invading the soviet union if they defeated the soviet union they were going to have full dominion over europe and lend-lease was like lend-lease didn't just keep the ussr in the war it kept britain in the war as well like the basically half the Soviet railway system and 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 oil and like the 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 uh, amount of of help that both these countries received from Lend-Lease and I don't know maybe this is a counterfactual um, but if they hadn't done if they if if they hadn't had the supply from the U.S. you know very well these two countries may have been knocked out of the war. And you're but, looking at a okay, you know, Roy. I, I got that, but, but let me ask you. Let me ask you this: 
If it could be said today that it was so morally absolutely good for Len Lease to have been enacted, um, you know, and that relates to why we're all supposed to give this more wide-scale endorsement to U.S. entry into the war, why is it that the actual effects of Len Lease had to be deliberately concealed from the public at the time? Is it because the public was just too stupid to recognize that it was the obviously correct thing to do? I mean, why did the public have to be sold a false bill of goods about what effect this legislation would have? I mean, it's not like... We only know this in retrospect. This was pointed out at the time by contemporaneous critics across the political spectrum from Norman Thomas to, yes, people on the right like uh, Lindbergh. I'm not giving a moral endorsement to Lindbergh. Um, but um, you know, if, if, if this is so straightforward, why the, why the active campaign of deception? Why couldn't the nature of U.S. involvement in the war be openly uh, deliberated and debated? Or in other words... Don't you, doesn't it occur to you that if there was such, that, such an extensive concerted campaign of state deceit, that um, if, the, if the case was so straightforward for why this was necessary, could that not have been simply presented to the public without the deception involved? Well, the public may have rejected this because they would have seen quite rightfully that this was a, a dramatic escalation in the uh, in the conflict and you know the u.s would eventually be dragged in into into the war and we have to uh looking back at history you know that germany was the one that declared war on the u.s and it was yeah, formally for this reason they didn't need to do it they wanted to have unrestricted warfare against uh you know u.s shipping so, right yeah germany germany kind, did, it, kind it, of an end it's sort of an end justify uh i mean justify the ends Okay, so if if you can if, make the let's, same let's argument just... for Allied bombing of of um, German cities, you can sort of make the same argument for whatever happened in the Pacific as well. And you have to make these. You have to you have to make these evaluations. You have okay, to so so yeah. So Roy, here's another way. Here's another way to think about it that might be clarifying for some. Okay, so let's say today, 2022, Joe Biden thinks he knows better than you and I about foreign policy, okay? So you and I both oppose U.S. intervention in Conflict X. I'm not even talking about Ukraine. I'm just going with a hypothetical, okay? Um, you and I both oppose U.S. intervention in Conflict X. Joe Biden supports it, but Joe Biden knows that he cannot garner sufficient support in the public uh, to, uh, for, for the, his initiation of the interventionist policy. So instead... Uh, Biden chooses to execute a campaign of extensive deceit. He decides to propose uh, policy measures which are presented to the public as a means by which the public could avoid the war, which is not which the public does not want to get into, but in fact have the effect of doing the opposite. Um, he portrays incidents uh, of warfare that he says must further accelerate our entry into the war uh, deceptively by falsely casting um, party X as the the one who initiated the attack when it in fact was the U.S. at Biden's direction which initiated the attack. Um, and uh, further and further on this goes until some catastrophic incident takes place um, and the U.S. is formally entered into the war. Um, now, should we just assume that Joe Biden knew better than you and I? We were both just dummies. And so we sh we, it was good that we were systematically deceived. 
um, and there should be no moral quandary associated with the fact that we are systematically deceived. Because I know for one thing, if today, contemporary, current day, 2022, if I uh, caught wind of a systematic campaign of deception um, undertaken to bring the country into war that wouldn't have been otherwise supported, uh, I would think that should be that should be like journalistically revealed, right? That should be debated. That shouldn't that that state concealment should not be allowed to just stand, right? Or 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 should it be allowed to stand if it's the case that Joe Biden can say later on that he was right, he was morally right to conceal that from us and deceive us uh, because he knew better than we did. Well, I mean, obviously, optimally, you don't want you don't want to do that. You want to be able to have transparency with all with uh, the public. But in matters of national security, there are there there are going to be things that, you know, you you aren't going to want to disclose in a military situation. Um, there are things that you that you aren't going to want to disclose. And I think, but I, I think the question I would ask you is, you know, what happens if there was no other choice? What happens if in 1941 there was no other way for Roosevelt to be able to get away with arming and really saving the USSR and you know. People thought the USSR was going to lose the war in 1941 based on, you know, the German military's performance against France. Like this was this was a, a an expected defeat. Uh, so I can't I, I can't more strongly state how bad the situation was in 1941. If Roosevelt has no other choice, I agree with you. If he had that choice to go to the public and say this is what we're going to do, uh, then then that would obviously be correct. But, you know, I think it's reasonable, you know, if he, I think if he did have that option, he would have taken it, right? Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what he would have done why wouldn't he have counterfactually. Lied? Why would he have lied to the, you know, why would he have lied to the public if he didn't? That's a great question. Uh, that's a question I wish more people would, you know, try to reckon with a bit. But, um, you know, it's a... Uh, it's not even. It's it's hardly even known. Uh, it seems, or it's at least very under severely underappreciated or underacknowledged that there was this systematic deception that preceded formal U.S. entry to the war. I mean, most people don't even know that this happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, why? As to the question of why that deceit was undertaken, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a great question. Um, I think it was like it was like a political thing, and you can make a criticism there for sure. Yeah. Um, because, you know, All right. Well, um, thanks, Roy. Just because I'm, I'm almost at the four-hour mark, okay. which is a record for me, and I want to take one more uh, call. Um, sorry, Charles and Jenny. Charles already spoke, and uh, uh, Jenny is a, is a long-time caller. But I'm, I'm only doing one more because uh, we've gone absurdly long at this point. So I'm just going to go with uh, Iggy. Hey, Michael. Um, first okay. things first. I just want to say that with regards to the conversation in the air, airtime Jonathan got. As a listener, I found it extremely frustrating because I think that his technique is quite transparent. He tries to push you into a binary position. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Yes or no? When you're trying to give a more nuanced argument and actually right. some of the stuff you're saying is not even binary. You're saying... Like I'm on trial. <laughs> yeah. In the face of this evidence, my position is I think there's more ambiguity to this situation and therefore you cannot ascribe absolute certainty in retrospect is kind of how I interpret what you're saying. 
So therefore, I wouldn't try and push you into a binary corner. I would tolerate the ambiguity. And he doesn't want to do that. Right. And that's quite a quite a basic technique. I found it very transparent. And I, I'm sure many other people do. Um, in respect to what you're talking about with World War Two and this deception aspect, you, you, you even don't need to get so much into the detail of World War Two history, because if you move forward through any war in my lifetime, deception in the, generating a public support narrative is always how the West has prosecuted war. Every single war that we've ever been in um, has been built up in exactly the same way you know there's no there's no truth to iraq there's no truth to afghanistan there's no and in fact when you get into is there a moral good outcome from those wars the answer is absolutely not right because there was no the pretexts upon which they were all prosecuted were lies and you could argue that the difference well potentially i would put forward the difference between World War II and those conflicts in retrospect is that World War II ended in, fortunately, the rejection of mass Nazi ideology being forced on and uh, taking hold permanently. And so in retrospect, it's very easy for us to say, thank God that didn't happen. Therefore, everything that stopped it is good. But you're clearly talking about the nuance of exactly how the, the decisions that lent that ended up with the final um, outcome come about. And, and we all know that human politics is so uh, complex, subtle, and um, let's say deceptive, that, that the things that you're talking about are grounded in positions where people were pursuing a multitude of agendas that ended up adding up to the final outcome that we can get behind. And it's that ambiguity in um, that ambiguity does not exist for Iraq. It does not exist for Afghanistan. It's unlikely to exist for Ukraine. And I will take some flaming for that, for saying that in a minute, I'm sure. And uh, I think that's the problem that you've got is that you're bringing nuance to something, a war that basically has a, a morally um, relatively un unambiguous retrospective position that's very easy for people to take. And, and I would agree with it. Who wants Nazis running the world? Um, but you're being, because you're bothering to discuss the nuance of how that, some of the mechanisms of how the US got into the war, you're then able to be taken to task by people like Jonathan in a very transparent way who want to say, because you're willing to talk about the ambiguities, you must be a Nazi sympathizer, which is obviously ridiculous. And that's kind of how I feel that your position has played out in the time I've been listening. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, I almost just want to let your statement uh, stand and not, not add anything because I, uh, I tend to agree with virtually all of it. Um, you know, I do think that, again, the uh, moral absolutism, the, the moral absolutism, sorry, the moral absolutism of the kind that I'm trying to counter and the kind that I'm trying to demonstrate actually has a deleterious effect on our, our ability to... Rational, rationally grasp issues at hand, not just in history, but in present day. Um, moral absolutism is a huge impediment to that. And I think, hence, 
the moral absolutism that tends to just be reflexively ascribed to an issue such as U.S. entry into World War II um, and then use sort of instrumentally to enforce foreign policy consensus around issues as disparate as Ukraine right now or even Iraq in 2003 or Vietnam in 1965. I mean, I studied examples from Lyndon Johnson and George W. Bush where these sorts of analogies are proffered um, as justification for their own interventionist U.S. policy. And, you know, those analogies are proffered because there's perceived to be an assumption embedded within them of absolutist moral content um, ascribed to the U.S. involvement uh, in in World War II. Um, so, yes, uh, I am seeking to sort of chip away at that absolutist uh, certainty from a variety of standpoints. Uh, one of them is the systematic state deception, as I've mentioned um, numerous times now. Uh, another is the uh, deliberate civilian targeting of the U.S. and allied uh, air campaign, even at a point, by the way, in, uh, at which there was no conceivable uh, or very little conceivable military rationale for them. You know, by 1945, when both, uh, both Japan and Germany were severely, uh, severely uh, depreciated in their military cap- uh, capacities, and then also this uh, Holocaust uh, issue, which, you know, may be the most contentious or I don't know. But, um, yeah, even if you leave out the Holocaust issue, right, it's still uh, – the argument still is in service of doing what you suggest, uh, Iggy, which is that um, calling into question the absolutist moral certainty with, with which this historical event is portrayed and then instrumentalized as a tactic to enforce – uh, conventional thinking around live issues, uh, whether it was Iraq in 2003 or whether it's Ukraine in 2022. So um, thanks, Iggy. I know I said I was going to wrap up with Iggy, but I did promise uh, Matthew um, that I would, or I don't know if I promised him, but I did tell him I was going to be having this discussion. I know he would want it to add uh, something. So I'm going to make an exception. I apologize to people who said, <laughs> to the people who I said uh, uh, couldn't speak because of I was going to end the room. Um, I'm overruling myself and doing taking one last caller for sure. Yeah. Um, so, Michael, I, I'm mostly going to focus on, I think, the taboo of uh, the Second World War. And here, of Second World War revision, I, I completely disagree with the arguments you made, but I'm concerned with the taboo nature of it because obviously you weren't denying the Holocaust um, you were making an argument, you come from an ideological point of view that isn't like <laughs> pro-Nazi, but is anti-war, I think, and broadly skeptical of U.S. foreign policy. And I'm concerned that we have to make a taboo out of these issues rather than uh, simply engage. And I was disappointed by some historians who seem to be reinforcing the taboo element rather than just harshly criticizing you substantively. Well, right. And, and, and you know, to that point, Matthew, I don't know how much of this room you've learned, you've listened to. I wouldn't blame you if you missed most of it because it's been going on for a very long time. But uh, you know, notwithstanding the the heavily personalized vitriol that has been, you know, spewed at me by this individual for six years, I nonetheless spent I don't know what seemed like an hour um, engaging with him, Jonathan Katz, 
Um, and notwithstanding that he did, you know, a rebuttal thread on, uh, on Twitter that it's now being, you know, passed around by historians and others, where it's alleged that my article is a, quote, deeply dishonest piece of lying garbage that frequently veers into Nazi, Nazi sympathizing adjectprop. Now, you know, in terms of the enforcement of taboo to delve into these, even if you disagree or even if you have substantive objections to what I've said, to characterize it in that language and for then that characterization to be, uh, you know, seconded and thirded, you know, all throughout the land, including by people who are in positions of, you know, uh, seeming authority on the subject, you know, gets to why I think you're, you're correct. I mean, there is a huge taboo um, around this, and the, tab- like the valence of that taboo has been uh, uh, intensified in part because people, you know, as- you know assume, or like the working supposition of people... Uh, often tends to be in their interpretation of my discussion of this issue that I'm doing it all in service of undermining, you know, uh, U.S. support for Ukraine or U.S. interventionist policy in Ukraine and therefore excusing Putin or defending Putin or what have you. Um, And so, you know, that I think is a big reason why the taboo is as uh, powerful as it seems to be right now. Not that it wasn't, wouldn't have been powerful before, but it's definitely taken on a new dimension now given, like, the again, the sort of discursive tactic of invoking this analogy today in relation to uh, the Ukraine situation, which is done, as you probably are aware, or if you aren't, you should be, over and over and over and over and over again to the point of, you know, ad nauseum. It's... It's really disappointing to me, uh, the reaction. I mean, I I completely disagree with you. I made that point in the previous call, and I stand by what I said. But it's disappointing to me that kind of argument's being made. So another argument that really disturbs me is um, that, oh, you have an ideological bias. Like, every historian who, like, the goal of being a historian is not to purge oneself of ideological bias. It's to develop a veto uh, in your head when the documents don't allow your preferred narrative that you reject it. It isn't to purge yourself of ideological bias because that's a Sisyphean thing. You should acknowledge it and have a capacity to veto. Like you, there are people who, who most people who have a morally positive view of U.S. intervention in World War II or think it was necessary. There are people who who disagree with people, revisionist, uh, not many, but some. Um, and I just I, I just think that people are kind of putting aside um, as academics just to vilify you in some woke game and then as to like oh michael's seconding what the nazis said well the nazis you know i would consider them to be the most vile regime in history but okay just because they said something doesn't and you're saying it doesn't mean it's wrong the nazis said stalin was bad like they were right about that the nazis said that the soviets said katan they're right about that i mean it's ridiculous to associate you with um with with nazism which people obviously think about genocide when they do that aerial bombing campaigns which don't get criticized enough even even today i don't think i think that's actually a fair point even though i i, I strongly disagree with your with your, the other takes you've made i think the bombings i mean this is unsoldierly like new king cities these are war crimes right you know so yeah um well i appreciate that matthew because you know despite your substantive disagreement or what you say is a substantive disagreement with an aspect of my argument, you're still able to recognize the incredibly, you know, invidious way in which what I'm arguing has been portrayed. Sorry to so interrupt you, the other night yeah. you just, you just misunderstood that, because I was coming at you on the substance. and Yes, no, I agree. 
No, I, I didn't understand that. You were defensive. I think, I think to be fair, you were like called the Holocaust denier constantly, including by some blue chip check marks or insinuations that you're there. No, I, under, I understood. I understood you to be uh, to be challenging me on the on the substance. I right. guess I, I objected to a certain substance of criticism you had made and maybe raised my voice while doing so, which I apologize for. But in, in, in totality, I, I I agree and recognize um, uh, that you have engaged uh, on the substance, which equips you with the ability to. <laughs> to uh, notice that so much of the criticism uh, actually is not on the substance. It's more, I don't know, like impressionistic about me or uh, this sort of sense that inferences or implications should be um, construed from what I'm saying uh, that shine light on my nefarious motives or my current political designs or something like that. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that you have... uh, set out to engage in the substance, you know, puts you in a position where you're able to, uh, you know, criticize those less reasonable um, objections. See, bias, I have, I believe, you know, World War II is justified, but my, the bias I perceive in you is obvious, like you're critical of U.S. foreign policy and you don't like this moralistic narrative of World War II, so you may be inclined to, to uh, skepticism uh, of these, nar- like, isn't that you're for the not? I mean, I don't know how people could get that, honestly. Like you're for the Nazis or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, they're uh, they're not the most charitably minded people, especially when their views are, uh, you know, transmuted through uh, Twitter in particular. Uh, that's my explanation. Um, all right, Matthew. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, this has been a marathon session. We're at over uh, four hours. Um, I guess you know, just to give a brief concluding thought. I hope. Uh, at, at least what I've demonstrated here is that I'm willing to uh, engage with critique. Uh, I'm not hiding from questions. I'm not trying to conceal my views or positions. Uh, I'm doing everything that's reasonably within my power to expose myself to, you know, reasoned, um, reasoned disputation, um, you know, including even among uh, people such as the earlier caller, uh, Jonathan, who has a, you know, a very clear track record of incredibly personalized vitriol and animus toward me on a non-substantive basis. I nevertheless sought to engage with him as substantively as uh, possible. Maybe I didn't succeed in every respect, but that was at least my intent. Um, And so, yeah, that's, I guess that'll about do it. Uh, And uh, I don't know. We'll uh, see where things go from here. I'm not sure I want to be a full-time uh, World War II uh, commentator necessarily. But, you know, again, recall the reason why this came up is because of the, you know, parallels being drawn to uh, present-day, you know, geopolitical circumstances. So, all right. Uh, thanks, everybody, and uh, take care. Bye-bye.